This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Today's podcast is a reading of The Horror at Red Hook by H.P. Lovecraft. It's read by Gordon Gould. It runs 57 minutes, and we will be discussing it afterward. The Horror at Red Hook by H.P. Lovecraft There are sacraments of evil as well as of good about us, and we live and move to my belief in an unknown world a place where there are caves and shadows and dwellers in twilight. It is possible that man may sometimes return on the track of evolution, and it is my belief that an awful lore is not yet dead. Arthur Mackin 1. Not many weeks ago, on a street corner in the village of Pascoe, Rhode Island, a tall, heavily built, and wholesome-looking pedestrian furnished much speculation by a singular lapse of behavior. He had, it appears, been descending the hill by the road from Chipachet, and encountering the compact section, had turned to his left into the main thoroughfare, where several modest business blocks convey a touch of the urban. At this point, without visible provocation, he committed his astonishing lapse. Staring queerly for a second at the tallest of the buildings before him, and then, with a series of terrified hysterical shrieks, breaking into a frantic run, which ended in a stumble and fall at the next crossing. Picked up and dusted off by ready hands, he was found to be conscious, organically unhurt, and evidently cured of his sudden nervous attack. He muttered some shame-faced explanations involving a strain he had undergone, and with downcast glance turned back up the Chapachet Road, trudging out of sight without once looking behind him. It was a strange incident to befall so large, robust, normal-featured, and capable-looking a man, and the strangeness was not lessened by the remarks of a bystander who had recognized him as the boarder of a well-known dairyman on the outskirts of Chipachet. He was, it developed, a New York police detective named Thomas F. Malone, now on a long leave of absence under medical treatment after some disproportionately arduous work on a gruesome local case which accident had made dramatic. There had been a collapse of several old brick buildings during a raid in which he had shared, and something about the wholesale loss of life, both of prisoners and of his companions, had peculiarly appalled him. As a result, he had acquired an acute and anomalous horror of any buildings even remotely suggesting the ones which had fallen in, so that in the end mental specialists forbade him the sight of such things for an indefinite period. A police surgeon with relatives in Chipachet had put forward that quaint hamlet of wooden colonial houses as an ideal spot for the psychological convalescence, and thither the sufferer had gone, promising never to venture among the brick-lined streets of larger villages till duly advised by the wound-socket specialist with whom he was put in touch. This walk to Pascogue for magazines had been a mistake, and the patient had paid in fright, bruises, and humiliation for his disobedience. So much the gossips of Chipachet and Pascogue knew, and so much also the most learned specialists believed. But Malone had at first told the specialists much more, ceasing only when he saw that utter incredulity was his portion. Thereafter he held his peace, protesting not at all, 
when it was generally agreed that the collapse of certain squalid brick houses in the Red Hook section of Brooklyn and the consequent death of many brave officers had unseated his nervous equilibrium. He had worked too hard, all said, in trying to clean up those nests of disorder and violence. Certain features were shocking enough in all conscience, and the unexpected tragedy was the last straw. This was a simple explanation which everyone could understand, and because Malone was not a simple person, he perceived that he had better let it suffice. To hint to unimaginative people of a horror beyond all human conception, a horror of houses and blocks and cities, leprous and cancerous with evil dragged from elder worlds, would be merely to invite a padded cell instead of a restful rustication. And Malone was a man of sense, despite his mysticism. He had the Celts' far vision of weird and hidden things, but the logician's quick eye for the outwardly unconvincing, an amalgam which had led him far afield in the forty-two years of his life, and set him in strange places for a Dublin University man born in a Georgian villa near Phoenix Park. And now, as he reviewed the things he had seen and felt and apprehended, Malone was content to keep unshared the secret of what could reduce a dauntless fighter to a quivering neurotic, what could make old brick slums and seas of dark subtle faces a thing of nightmare and eldritch portent. It would not be the first time his sensations had been forced to bide uninterrupted, for was not his very act of plunging into the polyglot abyss of New York's underworld a freak beyond sensible explanation? What could he tell the prosaic of the antique witcheries and grotesque marvels discernible to sensitive eyes amidst the poison cauldron where all the varied dregs of unwholesome ages mix their venom and perpetuate their obscene terrors. He had seen the hellish green flame of secret wonder in this blatant, evasive welter of outward greed and inward blasphemy, and had smiled gently when all the New Yorkers he knew scoffed at his experiment in police work. They had been very witty and cynical, deriding his fantastic pursuit of unknowable mysteries, and assuring him that in these days New York held nothing but cheapness and vulgarity. One of them had wagered him a heavy sum that he could not, despite many poignant things to his credit in the Dublin Review, even write a truly interesting story of New York lowlife. And now, looking back, he perceived that cosmic irony had justified the prophet's words while secretly confuting their flippant meaning. The horror, as glimpsed at last, could not make a story. For like the book cited by Poe's German authority, Es lässt sich nicht lesen. It does not permit itself to be read. 2. To Malone, the sense of latent mystery in existence was always present. In youth, he had felt the hidden beauty and ecstasy of things, and had been a poet. But poverty and sorrow and exile had turned his gaze in darker directions, and he had thrilled at the imputations of evil in the world around. Daily life had for him come to be a phantasmagoria of macabre shadow studies, now glittering and leering with concealed rottenness as in Beardsley's best manner, now hinting terrors behind the commonest shapes and objects as in the subtler and less obvious work of Gustave Doré. He would often regard it as merciful that most persons of high intelligence jeer at the inmost mysteries, 
For, he argued, if superior minds were ever placed in fullest contact with the secrets preserved by ancient and lowly cults, the resultant abnormalities would soon not only wreck the world, but threaten the very integrity of the universe. All this reflection was no doubt morbid, but keen logic and a deep sense of humor ably offset it. Malone was satisfied to let his notions remain as half-spied and forbidden visions to be lightly played with, and hysteria came only when duty flung him into a hell of revelation too sudden and insidious to escape. He had for some time been detailed to the Butler Street Station in Brooklyn when the Red Hook matter came to his notice. Red Hook is a maze of hybrid squalor near the ancient waterfront opposite Governor's Island, with dirty highways climbing the hill from the wharves to that higher ground where the decayed lengths of Clinton and Court Streets lead off toward the Borough Hall. Its houses are mostly of brick, dating from the first quarter to the middle of the nineteenth century, and some of the obscurer alleys and byways have that alluring antique flavor which conventional reading leads us to call Dickensian. The population is a hopeless tangle and enigma, Syrian, Spanish, Italian, and Negro elements impinging upon one another, and fragments of Scandinavian and American belts lying not far distant. It is a babel of sound and filth, and sends out strange cries to answer the lapping of oily waves at its grimy piers and the monstrous organ litanies of the harbor whistles. Here, long ago, a brighter picture dwelt with clear-eyed mariners on the lower streets and homes of taste and substance where the larger houses line the hill. One can trace the relics of this former happiness in the trim shapes of the buildings, the occasional graceful churches, and the evidences of original art and background in bits of detail here and there. A worn flight of steps, a battered doorway, a wormy pair of decorative columns or pilasters, or a fragment of once green space with bent and rusted iron railing. The houses are generally in solid blocks, and now and then a many-windowed cupola arises to tell of days when the households of captains and shipowners watched the sea. From this tangle of material and spiritual putrescence, the blasphemies of an hundred dialects assail the sky. Hordes of prowlers reel, shouting and singing along the lanes and thoroughfares. Occasional furtive hands suddenly extinguish lights and pull down curtains, and swarthy, sin-pitted faces disappear from windows when visitors pick their way through. Policemen despair of order or reform, and seek rather to erect barriers protecting the outside world from the contagion. The clang of the patrol is answered by a kind of spectral silence, and such prisoners as are taken are never communicative. Visible offenses are as varied as the local dialects, and run the gamut from the smuggling of rum and prohibited aliens through diverse stages of lawlessness and obscure vice to murder and mutilation in their most abhorrent guises. That these visible affairs are not more frequent is not to the neighborhood's credit, unless the power of concealment be an art demanding credit. More people enter Red Hook than leave it, or at least than leave it by the landward side, and those who are not loquacious are the likeliest to leave. Malone found in this state of things a faint stench of secrets more terrible than any of the sins denounced by citizens and bemoaned by priests and philanthropists. He was conscious, as one who united imagination with scientific knowledge, 
that modern people, under lawless conditions, tend uncannily to repeat the darkest instinctive patterns of primitive half-ape savagery in their daily life and ritual observances. And he had often viewed with an anthropologist's shudder the chanting, cursing processions of blear-eyed and pock-marked young men which wound their way along in the dark small hours of morning. One saw groups of these youths incessantly, sometimes in leering vigils on street corners, sometimes in doorways playing eerily on cheap instruments of music, sometimes in stupefied dozes or indecent dialogues around cafeteria tables near Borough Hall, and sometimes in whispering converse around dingy taxicabs drawn up at the high stoops of crumbling and closely shuttered old houses. They chilled and fascinated him more than he dared confess to his associates on the force, for he seemed to see in them some monstrous thread of secret continuity, some fiendish, cryptical, and ancient pattern utterly beyond and below the sordid mass of facts and habits and haunts listed with such conscientious technical care by the police. They must be, he felt inwardly, the heirs of some shocking and primordial tradition, the sharers of debased and broken scraps from cults and ceremonies older than mankind. Their coherence and definiteness suggested it, and it showed in the singular suspicion of order which lurked beneath their squalid disorder. He had not read in vain such treatises as Miss Murray's Witch Cult in Western Europe, and knew that up to recent years there had certainly survived among peasants and furtive folk a frightful and clandestine system of assemblies and orgies descending from dark religions antedating the Aryan world and appearing in popular legends as black masses and witches' sabbaths, that these hellish vestiges of old Turanian Asiatic magic and fertility cults were even now wholly dead, he could not for a moment suppose, and he frequently wondered how much older and how much blacker than the very worst of the muttered tales some of them might really be. 3. It was the case of Robert Sidham which took Malone to the heart of things in Red Hook. Sidham was a lettered recluse of ancient Dutch family, possessed originally of barely independent means, and inhabiting the spacious but ill-preserved mansion which his grandfather had built in Flatbush when that village was little more than a pleasant group of colonial cottages surrounding the steepled and ivy-clad reformed church with its iron-railed yard of Netherlandish gravestones. In his lonely house, set back from Martent Street amidst a yard of venerable trees, Sidham had read and brooded for some six decades, except for a period a generation before, when he had sailed for the old world and remained there out of sight for eight years. He could afford no servants and would admit but few visitors to his absolute solitude, eschewing close friendships and receiving his rare acquaintances in one of the three ground-floor rooms which he kept in order a vast, high-sealed library whose walls were solidly packed with tattered books of ponderous, archaic, and vaguely repellent aspect. The growth of the town and its final absorption in the Brooklyn district had meant nothing to Sidham, and he had come to mean less and less to the town. Elderly people still pointed him out on the streets, but to most of the recent population he was merely a queer, corpulent old fellow whose unkempt white hair, stubbly beard, shiny black clothes, and gold-headed cane earned him an amused glance and nothing more. Malone did not know him by sight 
till duty called him to the case, but had heard of him indirectly as a really profound authority on medieval superstition, and had once idly meant to look up an out-of-print pamphlet of his on the Kabbalah and the Faustus legend, which a friend had quoted from memory. Sidon became a case when his distant and only relatives sought court pronouncements on his sanity. Their action seemed sudden to the outside world, but was really undertaken only after prolonged observation and sorrowful debate. It was based on certain odd changes in his speech and habits, wild references to impending wonders and unaccountable hauntings of disreputable Brooklyn neighborhoods. He had been growing shabbier and shabbier with the years, and now prowled about like a veritable mendicant, seen occasionally by humiliated friends in subway stations or loitering on the benches around Borough Hall in conversation with groups of swarthy, evil-looking strangers. When he spoke, it was to babble of unlimited powers almost within his grasp, and to repeat with knowing leers such mystical words or names as Sephiroth, Ashmodai, and Samael. The court action revealed that he was using up his income and wasting his principal in the purchase of curious tomes imported from London and Paris, and in the maintenance of a squalid basement flat in the Red Hook district where he spent nearly every night, receiving odd delegations of mixed rowdies and foreigners, and apparently conducting some kind of ceremonial service behind the green blinds of secretive windows. Detectives assigned to follow him reported strange cries and chants and prancing of feet filtering out from these nocturnal rites, and shuddered at their peculiar ecstasy and abandon despite the commonness of weird orgies in that sodden section. When, however, the matter came to a hearing, Sidon managed to preserve his liberty. Before the judge, his manner grew urbane and reasonable, and he freely admitted the queerness of demeanor and extravagant cast of language into which he had fallen through excessive devotion to study and research. He was, he said, engaged in the investigation of certain details of European tradition which required the closest contact with foreign groups, and their songs and folk dances. The notion that any low, secret society was preying upon him, as hinted by his relatives, was obviously absurd, and showed how sadly limited was their understanding of him and his work. Triumphing with his calm explanations, he was suffered to depart unhindered, and the paid detectives of the Sidoms, Corlears, and Van Brunts were withdrawn in resigned disgust. It was here that an alliance of federal inspectors and police, Malone with them, entered the case. The law had watched the Sidham action with interest, and had in many instances been called upon to aid the private detectives. In this work, it developed that Sidham's new associates were among the blackest and most vicious criminals of Red Hook's devious lanes, and that at least a third of them were known and repeated offenders in the matter of thievery, disorder, and the importation of illegal immigrants. Indeed, it would not have been too much to say that the old scholar's particular circle coincided almost perfectly with the worst of the organized cliques which smuggled ashore certain nameless and unclassified Asian dregs wisely turned back by Ellis Island. In the teeming rookeries of Parker Place, since renamed, where Sidham had his basement flat, there had grown up a very unusual colony of unclassified, slant-eyed folk who used the Arabic alphabet, but were eloquently repudiated by the great mass of Syrians in and around Atlantic Avenue. They could all have been deported for lack of credentials, 
But legalism is slow-moving, and one does not disturb Red Hook unless publicity forces one to. These creatures attended a tumble-down stone church, used Wednesdays as a dance hall, which reared its gothic buttresses near the vilest part of the waterfront. It was nominally Catholic, but priests throughout Brooklyn denied the place all standing and authenticity, and policemen agreed with them when they listened to the noises it emitted at night. Malone used to fancy he heard terrible cracked bass notes from a hidden organ far underground when the church stood empty and unlighted, whilst all observers dreaded the shrieking and drumming which accompanied the visible services. Sidem, when questioned, said he thought the ritual was some remnant of Nestorian Christianity tinctured with the shamanism of Tibet. Most of the people, he conjectured, were of mongoloid stock, originating somewhere in or near Kurdistan and Malone could not help recalling that Kurdistan is the land of the Yezidis, last survivors of the Persian devil-worshippers. However this may have been, the stir of the Sidem investigation made it certain that these unauthorized newcomers were flooding Red Hook in increasing numbers, entering through some marine conspiracy unreached by revenue officers and harbor police, overrunning Parker Place and rapidly spreading up the hill and welcomed with curious fraternalism by the other assorted denizens of the region. Their squat figures and characteristic squinting physiognomies, grotesquely combined with flashy American clothing, appeared more and more numerously among the loafers and nomad gangsters of the Borough Hall section, till at length it was deemed necessary to compute their numbers, ascertain their sources and occupations, and find, if possible, a way to round them up and deliver them to the proper immigration authorities. To this task, Malone was assigned by agreement of federal and city forces, and as he commenced his canvas of Red Hook, he felt poised upon the brink of nameless terrors, with the shabby, unkempt figure of Robert Sidem as arch-fiend and adversary. 4. Police methods are varied and ingenious. Malone, through unostentatious rambles, carefully casual conversations, well-timed offers of hip-pocket liquor, and judicious dialogues with frightened prisoners, learned many isolated facts about the movement whose aspect had become so menacing. The newcomers were indeed Kurds, but of a dialect obscure and puzzling to exact philology. Such of them as worked lived mostly as dockhands and unlicensed peddlers, though frequently serving in Greek restaurants and tending corner newsstands. Most of them, however, had no visible means of support, and were obviously connected with underworld pursuits, of which smuggling and bootlegging were the least indescribable. They had come in steamships, apparently tramp freighters, and had been unloaded by stealth on moonless nights in rowboats which stole under a certain wharf and followed a hidden canal to a secret subterranean pool beneath a house. This wharf, canal, and house Malone could not locate, for the memories of his informants were exceedingly confused, while their speech was to a great extent beyond even the ablest interpreters. Nor could he gain any real data on the reasons for their systematic importation. They were reticent about the exact spot from which they had come, and were never sufficiently off guard to reveal the agencies which had sought them out and directed their course. Indeed, they developed something like acute fright when asked the reasons for their presence. Gangsters of other breeds were equally taciturn, and the most that could be gathered 
was that some god or great priesthood had promised them unheard of powers and supernatural glories and rulerships in a strange land. The attendance of both newcomers and old gangsters at Sidham's closely guarded nocturnal meetings was very regular, and the police soon learned that the erstwhile recluse had leased additional flats to accommodate such guests as knew his password, at last occupying three entire houses and permanently harboring many of his queer companions. He spent but little time now at his flatbush home, apparently going and coming only to obtain and return books, and his face and manner had attained an appalling pitch of wildness. Malone twice interviewed him, but was each time brusquely repulsed. He knew nothing, he said, of any mysterious plots or movements, and had no idea how the Kurds could have entered or what they wanted. His business was to study undisturbed the folklore of all the immigrants of the district, a business with which policemen had no legitimate concern. Malone mentioned his admiration for Sidham's old brochure on the Kabbalah and other myths, but the old man's softening was only momentary. He sensed an intrusion and rebuffed his visitor in no uncertain way, till Malone withdrew disgusted and turned to other channels of information. What Malone would have unearthed could he have worked continuously on the case, we shall never know. As it was, a stupid conflict between city and federal authority suspended the investigations for several months, during which the detective was busy with other assignments. But at no time did he lose interest or fail to stand amazed at what began to happen to Robert Sidham. Just at the time when a wave of kidnappings and disappearances spread its excitement over New York, the unkempt scholar embarked upon a metamorphosis as startling as it was absurd. One day he was seen near Borough Hall with clean-shaved face, well-trimmed hair, and tastefully immaculate attire, and on every day thereafter some obscure improvement was noticed in him. He maintained his new fastidiousness without interruption, added to it an unwanted sparkle of eye and crispness of speech, and began little by little to shed the corpulence which had so long deformed him. Now frequently taken for less than his age, he acquired an elasticity of step and buoyancy of demeanor to match the new tradition, and showed a curious darkening of the hair, which somehow did not suggest dye. As the months passed, he commenced to dress less and less conservatively, and finally astonished his new friends by renovating and redecorating his flatbush mansion, which he threw open in a series of receptions, summoning all the acquaintances he could remember, and extending a special welcome to the fully forgiven relatives who had so lately sought his restraint. Some attended through curiosity, others through duty, but all were suddenly charmed by the dawning grace and urbanity of the former hermit. He had, he asserted, accomplished most of his allotted work, and having just inherited some property from a half-forgotten European friend, was about to spend his remaining years in a brighter second youth, which ease, care, and diet had made possible to him. Less and less was he seen at Red Hook and more and more did he move in the society to which he was born. Policemen noted the tendency of the gangsters to congregate at the old stone church and dance hall instead of at the basement flat in Parker Place, though the latter and its recent annexes still overflowed with noxious life. Then two incidents occurred, wide enough apart, but both of intense interest in the case as Malone envisaged it. One was a quiet announcement in the Eagle 
of Robert Sidham's engagement to Miss Cornelia Garretson of Bayside, a young woman of excellent position and distantly related to the elderly bridegroom-elect, whilst the other was a raid on the dance hall church by city police after a report that the face of a kidnapped child had been seen for a second at one of the basement windows. Malone had participated in this raid and studied the place with much care when inside. Nothing was found. In fact, the building was entirely deserted when visited, but the sensitive Celt was vaguely disturbed by many things about the interior. There were crudely painted panels he did not like, panels which depicted sacred faces with peculiarly worldly and sardonic expressions, and which occasionally took liberties that even a layman's sense of decorum could scarcely countenance. Then, too, he did not relish the Greek inscription on the wall above the pulpit, an ancient incantation which he had once stumbled upon in Dublin college days, and which read, literally translated, O friend and companion of night, thou who rejoicest in the baying of dogs and spilt blood, who wanderest in the midst of shades among the tombs, who longest for blood and bringest terror to mortals, Gorgo, Mormo, thousand-faced moon, look favorably on our sacrifices. When he read this, he shuddered and thought vaguely of the cracked bass organ notes he fancied he had heard beneath the church on certain nights. He shuddered again at the rust around the rim of a metal basin which stood on the altar, and paused nervously when his nostrils seemed to detect a curious and ghastly stench from somewhere in the neighborhood. That organ memory haunted him, and he explored the basement with particular assiduity before he left. The place was very hateful to him, yet after all, were the blasphemous panels and inscriptions more than mere crudities perpetrated by the ignorant? By the time of Sidham's wedding, the kidnapping epidemic had become a popular newspaper scandal. Most of the victims were young children of the lowest classes, but the increasing number of disappearances had worked up a sentiment of the strongest fury. Journals clamored for action from the police, and once more the Butler Street Station sent its men over to Red Hook for clues, discoveries, and criminals. Malone was glad to be on the trail again, and took pride in a raid on one of Sidham's Parker Place houses. There, indeed, no stolen child was found, despite the tales of screams and the red sash picked up in the areaway, but the paintings and rough inscriptions on the peeling walls of most of the rooms and the primitive chemical laboratory in the attic all helped to convince the detective that he was on the track of something tremendous. The paintings were appalling, hideous monsters of every shape and size, and parodies on human outlines which cannot be described. The writing was in red, and varied from Arabic to Greek, Roman, and Hebrew letters. Malone could not read much of it, but what he did decipher was portentous and cabalistic enough. One frequently repeated motto was in a sort of Hebraized Hellenistic Greek, and suggested the most terrible demon evocations of the Alexandrian decadence. Hell, Heloim, Sother, Emmanuel, Sabaoth, Agla, Tetragrammaton, Agyros, Othios, Iskiros, Athanatos, Yehovah, Va, Adonai, Sadai, Homoousian,
Messias, Escaraheia. Circles and pentagrams loomed on every hand, and told indubitably of the strange beliefs and aspirations of those who dwelt so squalidly here. In the cellar, however, the strangest thing was found. A pile of genuine gold ingots covered carelessly with a piece of burlap, and bearing upon their shining surfaces the same weird hieroglyphics which also adorned the walls. During the raid, the police encountered only a passive resistance from the squinting orientals that swarmed from every door. Finding nothing relevant, they had to leave all as it was. But the precinct captain wrote Sidem a note, advising him to look closely to the character of his tenants and protégés in view of the growing public clamor. 5. Then came the June wedding and the great sensation. Blackbush was gay for the hour, about high noon, and penitent motors thronged the streets near the old Dutch church where an awning stretched from door to highway. No local event ever surpassed the Sidon Garretson nuptials in tone and scale, and the party which escorted bride and groom to the Cunard Pier was, if not exactly the smartest, at least a solid page from the social register. At five o'clock, adieus were waved, and the ponderous liner edged away from the long pier, slowly turned its nose seaward, discarded its tug, and headed for the widening water spaces that led to old world wonders. By night, the outer harbor was cleared, and late passengers watched the stars twinkling above an unpolluted ocean. Whether the tramp steamer or the scream was first to gain attention, no one can say. Probably they were simultaneous, but it is of no use to calculate. The scream came from the Sidem stateroom, and the sailor who broke down the door could perhaps have told frightful things if he had not forthwith gone completely mad. As it is, he shrieked more loudly than the first victims, and thereafter ran simpering about the vessel till caught and put in irons. The ship's doctor who entered the stateroom and turned on the lights a moment later did not go mad, but told nobody what he saw till afterward, when he corresponded with Malone in Japachet. It was murder, strangulation, but one need not say that the claw mark on Mrs. Sidham's throat could not have come from her husband's or any other human hand, or that upon the white wall there flickered for an instant in hateful red a legend which, later copied from memory, seems to have been nothing less than the fearsome Chaldee letters of the word Lilith. One need not mention these things because they vanished so quickly. As for Sidem, one could at least bar others from the room until one knew what to think oneself. The doctor has distinctly assured Malone that he did not see it. The open porthole, just before he turned on the lights, was clouded for a second with a certain phosphorescence, and for a moment there seemed to echo in the night outside the suggestion of a faint and hellish tittering, but no real outline met the eye. As proof, the doctor points to his continued sanity. Then the tramp steamer claimed all attention. A boat put off, and a horde of swart, insolent ruffians in officer's dress swarmed aboard the temporarily halted Cunarder. They wanted Sidem or his body. They had known of his trip, and for certain reasons were sure he would die. The captain's deck was almost a pandemonium, for at the instant, between the doctor's report from the stateroom and the demands of the men from the tramp, not even the wisest and gravest seamen could think what to do. Suddenly, 
the leader of the visiting mariners, an Arab with a hatefully negroid mouth, pulled forth a dirty, crumpled paper and handed it to the captain. It was signed by Robert Sidham and bore the following odd message. In case of sudden or unexplained accident or death on my part, please deliver me or my body unquestioningly into the hands of the bearer and his associates. Everything, for me and perhaps for you, depends on absolute compliance. Explanations can come later. Do not fail me now. Robert Sidham Captain and doctor looked at each other, and the latter whispered something to the former. Finally they nodded rather helplessly and led the way to the Sidham stateroom. The doctor directed the captain's glance away as he unlocked the door and admitted the strange seaman. Nor did he breathe easily till they filed out with their burden after an unaccountably long period of preparation. It was wrapped in bedding from the berths, and the doctor was glad that the outlines were not very revealing. Somehow the men got the thing over the side and away to their tramp steamer without uncovering it. The Cunarder started again, and the doctor and a ship's undertaker sought out the Sidham stateroom to perform what last services they could. Once more the physician was forced to reticence and even to mendacity, for a hellish thing had happened. When the undertaker asked him why he had drained off all of Mrs. Sidham's blood, he neglected to affirm that he had not done so, nor did he point to the vacant bottle spaces on the rack or to the odor in the sink which showed the hasty disposition of the bottle's original contents. The pockets of those men, if men they were, had bulged damnably when they left the ship. Two hours later, and the world knew by radio all that it ought to know of the horrible affair. 6. That same June evening, without having heard a word from the sea, Malone was desperately busy among the alleys of Red Hook. A sudden stir seemed to permeate the place, and as if apprised by a grapevine telegraph of something singular, the denizens clustered expectantly around the dance hall church and the houses in Parker Place. Three children had just disappeared, blue-eyed Norwegians from the streets toward Gowanus, and there were rumors of a mob forming among the sturdy Vikings of that section. Malone had for weeks been urging his colleagues to attempt a general clean-up, and at last, moved by conditions more obvious to their common sense than the conjectures of a Dublin dreamer, they had agreed upon a final stroke. The unrest and menace of this evening had been the deciding factor, and just about midnight a raiding party recruited from three stations descended upon Parker Place and its environs. Doors were battered in, stragglers arrested, and candle-lighted rooms forced to disgorge unbelievable throngs of mixed foreigners in figured robes, mitres, and other inexplicable devices. Much was lost in the melee, for objects were thrown hastily down unexpected shafts, and betraying odors deadened by the sudden kindling of pungent incense. But spattered blood was everywhere, and Malone shuddered whenever he saw a brazier or altar from which the smoke was still rising. He wanted to be in several places at once, and decided on Sidham's basement flat only after a messenger had reported the complete emptiness of the dilapidated dance hall church. The flat, he thought, must hold some clue to a cult of which the occult scholar had so obviously become the center and leader, and it was with real expectancy that he ransacked the musty rooms, noted their vaguely charnel odor, and examined the curious books, instruments, 
gold ingots, and glass-stoppered bottles scattered carelessly here and there. Once a lean black-and-white cat edged between his feet and tripped him, overturning at the same time a beaker half full of a red liquid. The shock was severe, and to this day Malone is not certain of what he saw, but in dreams he still pictures that cat as it scuttled away with certain monstrous alterations and peculiarities. Then came the locked cellar door, and the search for something to break it down. A heavy stool stood near, and its tough seat was more than enough for the antique panels. A crack formed and enlarged, and the whole door gave way. But from the other side, whence poured a howling tumult of ice-cold wind with all the stenches of the bottomless pit, and whence reached a sucking force not of earth or heaven, which coiling sentiently about the paralyzed detective dragged him through the aperture and down unmeasured spaces filled with whispers and wails and gusts of mocking laughter. Of course it was a dream. All the specialists have told him so, and he has nothing to prove the contrary. Indeed, he would rather have it thus, for then the sight of old brick slums and dark foreign faces would not eat so deeply into his soul. But at the time it was all horribly real, and nothing can ever efface the memory of those knighted crypts, those titan arcades, and those half-formed shapes of hell that strode gigantically in silence, holding half-eaten things whose still surviving portions screamed for mercy or laughed with madness. Odors of incense and corruption joined in sickening concert, and the black air was alive with the cloudy, semi-visible bulk of shapeless, elemental things with eyes. Somewhere, dark, sticky water was lapping at onyx piers, and once the shivery tinkle of raucous little bells pealed out to greet the insane titter of a naked, phosphorescent thing which swam into sight, scrambled ashore, and climbed up to squat leeringly on a carved golden pedestal in the background. Avenues of limitless night seemed to radiate in every direction, till one might fancy that here lay the root of a contagion destined to sicken and swallow cities and engulf nations in the fetor of hybrid pestilence. Here cosmic sin had entered, and festered by unhallowed rites had commenced the grinning march of death that was to rot us all to fungus abnormalities too hideous for the grave's holding. Satan here held his Babylonish court, and in the blood of stainless childhood the leprous limbs of phosphorescent Lilith were laved. Incubi and succubi howled praise to Hecate, and headless moon-calves bleated to the magna mater. Goats leaped to the sound of thin, accursed flutes, and Egypans chased endlessly after misshapen fawns over rocks twisted like swollen toads. Moloch and Ashtaroth were not absent, for in this quintessence of all damnation the bounds of consciousness were let down, and man's fancy lay open to vistas of every realm of horror and every forbidden dimension that evil had power to mold. The world and nature were helpless against such assaults from unsealed wells of night, nor could any sign or prayer check the Valpurgis riot of horror which had come when a sage with the hateful key 
had stumbled on a hoard with the locked and brimming coffer of transmitted demon lore. Suddenly, a ray of physical light shot through these phantasms, and Malone heard the sound of oars amidst the blasphemies of things that should be dead. A boat with a lantern in its prow darted into sight, made fast to an iron ring in the slimy stone pier, and vomited forth several dark men bearing a long burden, swathed in bedding. They took it to the naked, phosphorescent thing on the carved golden pedestal, and the thing tittered and pawed at the bedding. Then they unswathed it, and propped upright before the pedestal the gangrenous corpse of a corpulent old man with stubbly beard and unkempt white hair. The phosphorescent thing tittered again, and the men produced bottles from their pockets and anointed its feet with red, whilst they afterward gave the bottles to the thing to drink from. All at once, from an arcaded avenue leading endlessly away, there came the demoniac rattle and wheeze of a blasphemous organ, choking and rumbling out the mockeries of hell in a cracked, sardonic bass. In an instant, every moving entity was electrified, and forming at once into a ceremonial procession, the nightmare horde slithered away in quest of the sound. Goat, satyr, and Egypan, incubus, succuba, and lemur, twisted toad and shapeless elemental, dog-faced howler and silent strutter in darkness, all led by the abominable naked phosphorescent thing that had squatted on the carved golden throne and that now strode insolently, bearing in its arms the glassy-eyed corpse of the corpulent old man. The strange dark men danced in the rear, and the whole column skipped and leaped with Dionysiac fury. Malone staggered after them a few steps, delirious and hazy, and doubtful of his place in this or in any world. Then he turned, faltered, and sank down on the cold, damp stone, gasping and shivering as the demon organ croaked on, and the howling and drumming and tinkling of the mad procession grew fainter and fainter. Vaguely he was conscious of chanted horrors and shocking croakings afar off. Now and then a wail or whine of ceremonial devotion would float to him through the black arcade, whilst eventually there rose the dreadful Greek incantation whose text he had read above the pulpit of that dance-hall church. O friend and companion of night, thou who rejoicest in the baying of dogs, here a hideous howl burst forth and spilt blood, here nameless sounds vied with morbid shriekings, who wanderest in the midst of shades among the tombs, here a whistling sigh occurred, who longest for blood and bringest terror to mortals, short, sharp cries from myriad throats, Gorgo, repeated as response, Mormo, repeated with ecstasy, thousand-faced moon, sighs and flute notes, look favorably on our sacrifices. As the chant closed, a general shout went up, and hissing sounds nearly drowned the croaking of the cracked bass organ. Then a gasp as from many throats, and a babel of barked and bleated words, Lilith, great Lilith, behold the bridegroom. More cries, a clamor of rioting, and the sharp, clicking footfalls of a running figure. 
the footfalls approached, and Malone raised himself to his elbow to look. The luminosity of the crypt, lately diminished, had now slightly increased, and in that devil light there appeared the fleeing form of that which should not flee or feel or breathe, the glassy-eyed, gangrenous corpse of the corpulent old man, now needing no support, but animated by some infernal sorcery of the rite just closed. After it raced the naked, tittering, phosphorescent thing that belonged on the carven pedestal, and still farther behind panted the dark men and all the dread crew of sentient loathsomeness. The corpse was gaining on its pursuers, and seemed bent on a definite object, straining with every rotting muscle toward the carved golden pedestal, whose necromantic importance was evidently so great. Another moment, and it had reached its goal, whilst the trailing throng labored on with more frantic speed. But they were too late, for in one final spurt of strength, which ripped tendon from tendon, and sent its noisome bulk floundering to the floor in a state of jellyish dissolution, the staring corpse, which had been Robert Sidham, achieved its object and its triumph. The push had been tremendous, but the force had held out, and as the pusher collapsed to a muddy blotch of corruption, the pedestal he had pushed tottered, tipped, and finally careened from its onyx base into the thick waters below sending up a parting gleam of carven gold as it sank heavily to undreamable gulfs of lower Tartarus. In that instant, too, the whole scene of horror faded to nothingness before Malone's eyes, and he fainted amidst a thunderous crash which seemed to blot out all the evil universe. 7. Malone's Dream experienced in full before he knew of Sidham's death and transfer at sea, was curiously supplemented by some odd realities of the case, though that is no reason why anyone should believe it. The three old houses in Parker Place, doubtless long rotten with decay in its most insidious form, collapsed without visible cause while half the raiders and most of the prisoners were inside, and of both the greater number were instantly killed. Only in the basements and cellars was there much saving of life, and Malone was lucky to have been deep below the house of Robert Sidon, for he really was there, as no one is disposed to deny. They found him unconscious by the edge of a night-black pool, with a grotesquely horrible jumble of decay and bone, identifiable through dental work as the body of Sidon a few feet away. The case was plain, for it was hither that the smuggler's underground canal led and the men who took Sidon from the ship had brought him home. They themselves were never found, or at least never identified. And the ship's doctor is not yet satisfied with the simple certitudes of the police. Sidon was evidently a leader in extensive man-smuggling operations, for the canal to his house was but one of several subterranean channels and tunnels in the neighborhood. There was a tunnel from this house to a crypt beneath the dance hall church a crypt accessible from the church only through a narrow secret passage in the north wall, and in whose chambers some singular and terrible things were discovered. The croaking organ was there, as well as a vast arched chapel with wooden benches and a strangely figured altar. The walls were lined with small cells, in seventeen of which, hideous to relate, solitary prisoners, in a state of complete idiocy, were found chained including four mothers with infants of disturbingly strange appearance.
These infants died soon after exposure to the light, a circumstance which the doctors thought rather merciful. Nobody but Malone, among those who inspected them, remembered the somber question of old Del Rio, Ansint unquam daimones incubi et succubi, et an ex tali congressu proles nasci queat? Before the canals were filled up, they were thoroughly dredged, and yielded forth a sensational array of sawed and split bones of all sizes. The kidnapping epidemic very clearly had been traced home, though only two of the surviving prisoners could by any legal thread be connected with it. These men are now in prison, since they failed of conviction as accessories in the actual murders. The carved golden pedestal or throne, so often mentioned by Malone as of primary occult importance, was never brought to light, though at one place under the Sidem house the canal was observed to sink into a well too deep for dredging. It was choked up at the mouth and cemented over when the cellars of the new houses were made, but Malone often speculates on what lies beneath. The police, satisfied that they had shattered a dangerous gang of maniacs and man-smugglers, turned over to the federal authorities the unconvicted Kurds, who, before their deportation, were conclusively found to belong to the Yezidi clan of devil-worshippers. The tramp ship and its crew remain an elusive mystery, though cynical detectives are once more ready to combat its smuggling and rum-running ventures. Malone thinks these detectives show a sadly limited perspective in their lack of wonder at the myriad unexplainable details, and the suggestive obscurity of the whole case, though he is just as critical of the newspapers, which saw only a morbid sensation and gloated over a minor sadist cult, which they might have proclaimed a horror from the universe's very heart. But he is content to rest silent in Chepachet, calming his nervous system and praying that time may gradually transfer his terrible experience from the realm of present reality to that of picturesque and semi-mythical remoteness. Robert Sidem sleeps beside his bride in Greenwood Cemetery. No funeral was held over the strangely released bones, and relatives are grateful for the swift oblivion which overtook the case as a whole. The scholar's connection with the Red Hook horrors, indeed, was never emblazoned by legal proof, since his death forestalled the inquiry he would otherwise have faced. His own end is not much mentioned and the Sidem's hope that posterity may recall him only as a gentle recluse who dabbled in harmless magic and folklore. As for Red Hook, it is always the same. Sidem came and went. A terror gathered and faded, but the evil spirit of darkness and squalor broods on amongst the mongrels in the old brick houses, and prowling bands still parade on unknown errands past windows where lights and twisted faces unaccountably appear and disappear. Age-old horror is a hydra with a thousand heads, and the cults of darkness are rooted in blasphemies deeper than the well of Democritus. The soul of the beast is omnipresent and triumphant, and Red Hook's legions of blear-eyed, pock-marked youths still chant and curse and howl as they file from abyss to abyss none knows whence or whither, pushed on by blind laws of biology which they may never understand. As of old, more people enter Red Hook than leave it on the landward side, and there are already rumors of new canals running underground to certain centers of traffic in liquor 
and less mentionable things. The dance hall church is now mostly a dance hall, and queer faces have appeared at night at the windows. Lately, a policeman expressed the belief that the filled-up crypt has been dug out again, and for no simply explainable purpose. Who are we to combat poisons older than history and mankind? Apes danced in Asia to those horrors, and the cancer lurks secure and spreading where furtiveness hides in rows of decaying brick. Malone does not shudder without cause, for only the other day an officer overheard a swarthy, squinting hag teaching a small child some whispered patois in the shadow of an areaway. He listened and thought it very strange when he heard her repeat over and over again, O friend and companion of night, thou who rejoicest in the baying of dogs and spilt blood, who wanderest in the midst of shades among the tombs, who longest for blood and bringest terror to mortals, Gorgo, Mormo, thousand-faced moon, look favorably on our sacrifices. Hi, I'm Jesse. I'm still Paul. I'm Evan. I'm Julie. And I'm Trish. And we're going to talk about The Horror at Red Hook by H.P. Lovecraft. First published in Weird Tales, January 1927. It got a reprint uh, about... 20 years later, in the same magazine, with different art. Uh, I encourage everybody to go look at the art. They're quite different. Um, <laughs> in the 1927 issue, which I have reluctantly processed, because I'm missing the table of contents, there is a dude, a uh, very fat dude, being carried off by some creatures. <laughs> I assume that's Robert Suidam, or however you pronounce his name. And, uh, I think it's Soidem. Soidem? Okay. Sidem. Robert Sidem. Sidem? Soidem? Soidem? I want to hear how Evan pronounces it. Sidem, I think. Sidem? But, yes. Sidem? It's a Dutch name, so the UI would be I. Like, no, Skookle is ooh. So, Sudem? I don't know. <laughs> it suits him, whatever it is. <laughs> All right. Um, and, uh, I, I, Pretty confident I read this story long, long ago, but I also was very baffled when I first re-encountered this story, uh, I don't know, a few years ago when it was adapted to uh, Providence. You guys all read Providence by Jason Burroughs and, and uh, Alan Moore? Yes, you sent it to me. Yeah, that was that was years ago, right? I don't that, know. that was like a few years ago. Yeah. And there, there's a, each, each episode, each uh, issue is sort of an adaptation of, sort of an adaptation of a story. And, and I believe it's in issue two, which I have here, I think. Um, they do an adaptation and I didn't recognize it for what it was. But now in re-listening and rereading the story, I do recognize it. And I know there are other adaptations, but, um, that was, I guess, the most recent one, other than there's a book that, uh, I guess, reimagines the story. Um, was there any at other? Least until, at least until I get mine done. Ha <laughs> right. Oh, and of course, there's the audio drama by HPLHS, um, which also is, you know, doesn't follow the story exactly, but uh, it goes, it goes, it's pretty close. It, re- it, re- it reframes it in a more logical way. 
Hmm. More logical. Interesting. Well, okay. Well, 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 okay. So, so I'll, 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 I'll dissect that because the, the story begins in Rhode Island of all places and then just goes launching back into this guy thinking about, about what happened and going into the reasons why to get back to Rhode Island, but there's no actual closure really to that, to that loop. I mean, he starts off in Rhode Island, he sees something, makes him, makes him, uh, go gaga. And then, and then we get, we get all the stuff that led up to this, but there's actually no actual meeting of that circle at the end. Whereas the, the, the drama actually closes closes that circle by basically having having him in a sanitarium in Rhode Island, and so we we get the story within that framing story of him telling the story to the psychiatrist. Mm-hmm. Whereas so this where, where's this story? Whereas the base base story doesn't do that. I mean, I mean, it has one it has the paragraph at the end. Malone does not shut up our cause, but it doesn't actually bring us back to Malone. It's 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 a it's a de- it's a dangling opening that doesn't doesn't close up and it I felt a little unsatisfactory at least the original mm. listening of it to me. I know it's something Lovecraft does, but he's usually better about getting back to the start where he doesn't do that here. He just he start he starts with Malone a couple hundred miles away from the events and then we go through the events and then it just stops. I think there's reasons for that. <laughs> well, there's also, I mean, the story is told in two parallel tales that don't necessarily intersect in any logical way from an outside viewpoint. I mean, you've got one, the two stories being, oh, look, child kidnappings, creepy foreigners, they go into raid, blah, blah, blah. And the other story being the Sidem story. And, I mean, we – if you just look at those two stories from the viewpoint of, you know, a random observer who didn't know there was a connection, there's no connection. Well, yeah. The, 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 the Except that story- Sidem goes and hangs out with the people over there who are doing the – you know, I mean, it's – if if you didn't ever see him go hang out with them, then they'd be two completely separate stories. Mm. The side of the story is experimenting on the children, though. It's, yeah, it's, it's, part of what the it's really doing. subtle, right? It's, it's very like Charles Dexter Ward in a way, because this was, that was written around the same time, where you yeah. have, like, Kerwin, he's taking slaves and sailors and experimenting on them. And they're all like, they end up in the same place, like this dark dungeon, mm-hmm. totally unredeemed. Yeah, I um, mean, so, so, I saw those as more. I saw them coming together fairly well. Yeah, yeah. I, I think it's very, very subtle. And I, that's actually, I think, why I like this story so much. I was like, this is, this is like, well, think about who's telling the story, right? It's not actually God, right? He doesn't know everything. But the guy is totally bent <laughs> in that he has, he has Lovecraft's descriptions and judgments about everything. Um, he doesn't not know everything but he knows more than uh than malone and he knows more than uh you know the the government but why is he telling this story to us it's so uh so distant from normally lovecraft has like some sort of i don't know closer hook in in stories of this length like uh 
in cool air, it's the narrators telling the story, right? The guy who yeah. events happen to him. In the mm-hmm. audio drama, they've got it as uh, it's it's pretty distant as well. But we do have the the frame of the psychiatrist, which is actually in the story, right? The police surgeon suggesting he go do this. But mm-hmm. but I'm so obsessed with like there's this Irish detective who's basically a dilettante when it comes to police work, right? He's doing it because it's interesting and he's super attracted to these things that are being described as like horrible and yucky. In the story, doesn't it point out that he, while he went to college, his family, his family lost their money and that's why he's a police. Actually, he's a working police officer. In the same way that Lovecraft is. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He is very, he's very much a Lovecraft protagonist as, as a sidem. I mean, which, which is why the sidem story feels, feels closer because, okay, that's a, that's a Lovecraft protagonist that is delving, delving into dark things mm. and, and bad things happening to him. Whereas Malone, is the Lovecraft protagonist that knows too much. And, but it feels a really odd joining of a, of a police detective who also knows a ton about the occult and why he actually <laughs> does still feels really like, really, you know, this stuff. That's, why? I so, mean, you, you, I, I, his I, grandmother told him. I, I mean, in the drama, he says, because I read and, and even in the drama, one point says, the, Somebody shoots back. You read odd books. It's like, yes, he does. Yes, he does. That's why I'm saying he's kind of a dilettante. I, I'm watching. Uh, there's a show on Prime called Bosch. If you guys know this mm-hmm. series, it's oh Bosch. B-O-S-H. Yeah, it's, it's based on a series of books by yep. uh, L.A. Uh, Michael Connolly. Michael Connolly. Yeah, he's a good writer. He's not my mm-hmm. favorite, but he's good. He's modern. Um, and, uh, the character's named Hieronymus Bosch, right? <laughs> oh, oh, B-O-S-C-H. Okay. Yeah. So it's like, oh, okay. So it's like the, he's named name after the, the painter, art. kind of. His mother. He goes by Harry, though. Yeah. He's not named b- after British nonsense. <laughs> <laughs> no. Okay. Yeah. Although... I, I, I thought at first, like, yeah. oh. Yeah. In any case, um, he's, uh, he's, a his mom was a prostitute. She was serial killed, right? But the focus is just it's it's on police investigations into you know murders in Hollywood. But uh, like uh, if you guys remember the HBO series that was sort of lifting Lovecraft stuff. What's that called? The True Detective. It's kind of there's sort of oh, that that was that that yeah, that was more Chambers than Lovecraft in some ways. It was, it was both. It was both for sure. Um, Chambers is much more shouted out to, but. The important part was both of these shows have sort of detectives who uh, the undercurrents are kind of more interesting than the investigation of the actual murder. Like the the what what is motivating stuff is is really interesting. So here we've got a cop who, after being traumatized, right in a terrible uh building collapse and i want to talk about why those buildings collapsed or the whole block collapsed or whatever um because that's not ever shown on screen right um and i have some ideas of why that happened he goes to uh rhode island <laughs> to stay away from brick buildings to you know recover his <laughs> senses is hilarious it's well, tall buildings as well. Yes, tall brick buildings. Anything over three stories tall. That's right. 
Yeah, because flat Rhode Island has plenty of stone to quarry instead of me using brick for, out of clay out of out of uh, the mines in Rhode Island. Yeah, but, the architecture yeah. is very important for Lovecraft. But more importantly, um, on his way out uh, to get some quote unquote magazines, right? He he has an incident that sort of kicks off our introduction to the story. And then we find out about his investigations into this Robert Suidem character. And basically his job was to go hang out in Red Hook and enumerate the gangs and figure out what's going on. And it's sort of unclear, like, why this investigation would actually happen. So there's a little bit of skepticism as to why that would happen. Then we find out more about Suidem and how his family thinks he's gone insane and then we sort of get some inferences about why, why maybe the, the actions that take place are, are, expo- you know, the missing children and all these immigrants being imported from tramp steamers, one of my favorite tropes that nobody talks about anymore. <laughs> why, why all this stuff is happening. And then I'm like totally thinking, you know what this is? This is actually sort of the, Events that created Innsmouth, but in a contemporary setting rather than in a setting far after the events and the decline, because the promises are the same, right? And the results for Suidam, or however you pronounce his name, Sidem, uh, are, are very similar. And yet the, I don't think they're fishmen, <laughs> exactly. They're not deep ones, well, right? I mean, they point out in the story that they're Kurds, which is yeah. strangely contemporary also. Is it Yazidi, to be precise, yeah. Yeah, yeah did I you was... get the book that I sent you, I Jesse? Did, I did not. Did you send me, you'd send me oh, a book? Oh, I, I sent you a link. Project Gutenberg has the Yazidi Devil Cult book. Where, how did you send that? This morning in Twitter. On Twitter, okay. <laughs> I haven't looked at Twitter this morning. I've, I've been meaning to do it for ages. I just keep forgetting because I'm always on the wrong computer. Oh, okay, there it I'm is. I'm talking to you, but um, yeah, the, I, that's probably the book that the title gave gave Lovecraft the idea for Devil Worship: The Sacred Books and Traditions of the Yazidi by Isaiah Joseph. Yeah, that sounds right. Yeah. And it's published around 1919 or something. Yeah, and um, sex and the worship funny thing and is, symbolism of primitive races <laughs> in the World mm-hmm. Worship series. Okay. Yeah, and they they have to make it sound exciting because nobody's going to read it otherwise or buy it. And Definitely. I mean, just from a quick skim and a couple of word searches, mm-hmm. it sounds like the Yazidis were just a offshoot of Islam that really didn't have any devil worship. Anybody at who all. doesn't follow your religion is a devil worshiper, right? <laughs> True, but at the same time, I mean, just looking at their quick description of it. It sounds like it was an offshoot of Islam, much the way that, um, uh, you know, Mormonism was an offshoot of Christianity. It just was, it, it's just another book. Mm. And, um, yeah, and- I was reading that there were elements of uh, Zoroastrianism, mm-hmm. um, uh, which is not a devil, you know, it's good and evil, it's just a different kind of good and evil than Christianity. Um, uh, not devil worship. of the curse of days, the persecution <laughs> of the Yazidi Christians by the by ISIL. And uh oh, there are many disturbing elements in this 
<laughs> our red hook um, well, that, that, you know, what, we can go into whenever. But what, what cracks me up, though, is that throughout Red Hook, all of the spooky things that are being mentioned are like Lilith, etc., mm-hmm. are all totally Catholic Christian tropes. And they don't appear anywhere in the Yazidis book. <laughs> I did a word search just to mm-hmm. make sure. Everything they're talking about, you know, like, you know, are, are totally Catholic demons and things. Yeah. But the, Hell, this is totally Lovecraft's thing, is he yeah. morphs these things together. Uh, there's a story, one of his earlier stories, the the Huitzapoktli one. Uh, that's the um, the mound? <sighs> No, not the mound. Oh, oh, you're talking about the one in Mexico? The transition of Juan Romero. Yeah, okay, gotcha. Where it's never really explained, but the the narrator there, he has this ring from, because he was hanging out with, like, Hindu mystics. Because he was, like, somehow connected to the British Empire in India for a while working for them. He doesn't tell his backstory, but he comes with this ring. and, And Juan Romero, who is an Indian, raised by Mexico. But he's Aztec, essentially. His blood's Aztec. And he really digs that ring, and there's some. He loses it eventually in the events of the story. It's all pretty vague what happens, but somehow they go underground, and there's like a, like something with Huitzapoktli down there. And there's some, almost like there's this subtle primordial connection between Hindu deities and New World deities. And. He just likes to bring those stuff together. Well, he's, and, they're you know, ancient. It's the, the important part, right? where you have this. Uh, you have Eskimos. You have mulatto sailors in New Orleans, and that nautical Negro from the very first page of that story, all involved in these weird heterodox cults. And yeah, I think that's about one of the hybrid squ- Sorry, go ahead. About Lovecraft's narrative about the working class. <laughs> and it's in Ismo too. I mean, Ismo too. You get the stuff from on abroad, right? I, I like what, how you brought up Innsmouth, Jesse, because mm. in a way, Innsmouth is kind of a smaller version of New York City. It was, an, it was a maritime city, an industrial city, interracial, right? Connected to the world. But Innsmouth is like New York City, maybe a hundred years after its decline or something. After, mm. and I think Lovecraft had no doubt. I'm sure that. That New York did not have a prosperous future. If you read his letters from the period, he didn't think much of New York, obviously. I thought New York was just on the brink of collapse. Mm-hmm. Or, or, so, uh, or, or, or sure. yeah, I mean that's that, that yeah. that's a through line that makes me think of uh, Ra's al Ghul and the Batman saga and, and wanting to bring down Gotham because Gotham is a is a cesspool and should be humbled because it's just beyond beyond salvation at that point. That's a very old. That's yeah. a very old story. That New York is the cesspool that's ready to fall into the mire anytime, as epitomized by the uh, the classic headline, "Fort to New York, drop dead." Yeah, I thought the collapse of the buildings at the end was very symbolic of what HPL would like to just happen to New York in general. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, there's a, there's another way of reading. Like, I that's why I love reading the Yellow Peril stories. Like. Uh, Zach Romer is mm-hmm. is that basically you know they're super racist, but when you start looking at them from a you know sort of a I don't know a hundred year view, you sort of notice that the authors are really attracted to the things that they're writing about, 
And so in this story, we've got two characters who are interested in things that are, you know, scary. <laughs> and one of them is like Harley Warren. And the other one is uh, like uh, Randolph Carter. One will actually go down deep underground and be excited about the prospect. And the other one, uh, he says, quote unquote, uh, I had... a." I did it more through reluctant fascination than actual inclination. I don't believe that to be the case. I believe it is an actual inclination that is like, here's the problem. A gentleman wouldn't act this way, right? So you've got this attraction and repulsion. And one of them goes deep and he digs so deep that he gets a reward. So, uh, like, it, it never says in the story what happens, but, uh, pretty sure Sidem is, you know, he's gained immortality. But another thing that, you know, every, a lot of Lovecraft stories have. Alchemist has that. Um, uh, Charles Dexter Ward has that, right? This is, you know, the tomb. There's a number of stories. Where, uh, you know, it's even in Innsmouth, right? The promise of immortality. Yeah. And even the, the, the promise in, Call of Cthulhu is similar to that. Right. right. I always yeah. mention this, but uh, the interview between the detective, FBI guy or whatever he was, he's, he's the one who shows up at the anthropology meeting, right? And he and, actually has... And he talks know. to Castro, right? That mulatto... Sl- mm-hmm. that, not uh, that mulatto uh, sailor. And he says, like, whoa, like, the world sh- shits on us, treats us like garbage, but Cthulhu promises... Salvation. Um, I don't know if it's directly immortal life, but there's some similar language here of like freedom, worldly freedom. It, no, they're gonna they're gonna take a high yeah. position in another realm, yeah. right? So no. this is very Christian, you know. You know, keep the keep the people working in the factories, uh, keep them, you know, materially starved because their reward is in heaven, right? And it, this is the very uh, no uh, rich man can pass through the eye of a needle. Right, uh, a camel can get the nose, blah blah blah. Right, so we've got sort of this religious aspect. Whereas, if you buy into this religion and it happens to be true, then you're good. Now, what happens to Sidem? He he su- suddenly gets younger. He gets trimmer. His voice gets better. His hair gets uh, blacker. Uh, he gets a fiance. He, uh, yeah, he, yeah. He and but once you have money, that's not that hard. He got all the. Books. Well, we had the money. He talked before, to the right but... people. He, 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 he's learned the right folk dances and, you know, whatever is trafficking going on down there. Um, he, you know, gets what he wants. He goes on his honeymoon and then what? Suddenly Lilith shows up. I assume it's Lilith. Um, and she says, how dare you cheat on me <laughs> or whatever's going well, on. Okay. And then I- the, the tragedy is like, oh, he sort of broke with the tradition that he was. He was going with it. Like he, he got in, he, it's like he became a Mormon and he got his planet. And then suddenly, uh, he stopped practicing Mormonism and the God of the Mormons came and, you know, snap, snuffed him out. That seems to be what's going on in the background, right? So this is very similar to what we see in all lot of Lovecraft. A statement of Randolph Carter was that guy going down into that, into that. Uh, tomb. Um, well, we never find out, but he sort of gets what he wants and he sort of doesn't. And then, uh, in Innsmouth, right, it, it seems that the city's decaying, but actually the city is like, it's like this, 
basically it's like where the penguins go to lay their eggs. It's not that interesting, okay. right? <laughs> it's just a, it, it, you know, the real kingdom's down under the sea. So there, there's this repulsion and attraction and it's so undercooked topic, in this. I love it. I love that this story is so undercooked yeah. because. And can I take a strange little side trip with that in mind? Sure. Which is one of the other things we discuss a lot of times you see discussed in H.P. Lovecraft forums alongside his racism is his sexuality. Mm-hmm. And there is an aspect of the story of the, of the creepy, unmarried, rich, old, fat guy hanging out in strange places with lots of foreign guys mm-hmm. who work at Greek restaurants. Yep. Which makes you go, wait a minute, is this the Lovecraft story? <laughs> I mean, because it's just, oh, okay, that's a, that's a whole lifestyle choice in a way. That, that, you know, could be something completely different. I have no idea what would be, you know, what would represent a, a you know, anything in a gay lifestyle in, in New York in the 20s. Uh, but read, read I'm sure Providence. Lovecraft didn't either. Read Providence but. because there's uh, really good stuff. Uh, the main character in Providence is he's basically sort of our Lovecraft analog. His name's mm-hmm. Robert Black and he's gay. Um, and he goes and basically experiences all of Lovecraft's stories and he experiences them as a gay man. Um, and, uh, so, you know, there's like, there's, there's all these dock workers who, you know, they're cross-dressers and it, it's, it's very interesting. I, I'm not sure that Moore has pegged <laughs> Lovecraft's sexuality, right? In fact, I'm pretty sure he hasn't. But it doesn't matter. It's in there to be read correctly, as you were pointing out, Julie. Yeah. Well, I mean, one of the reoccurring themes in Lovecraft that a lot of people read as being an indication of of wanting romantic love with a male is that the the whole, you know, I met this guy and we were immediately friends. Mm -hmm. We're best friends. And, and, you know, and that can also be read, though, as a lack of a father figure or any male sure. companionship in childhood and just wanting a real friend. Everybody needs yeah. a friend, Julie. Yeah, especially when you're stuck at home with cats. <laughs> and your two aunts. Well, that's, that's Lovecraft. I miss cats. <laughs> So Jesse, I, w- I want to go back to something you're saying and and rethinking rethinking um, rethinking our our uh, antagonist or one of our antagonists' plot lines for a second. So are you suggesting that basically basically that uh, he he went to he basically started working with Red Hooks, got wrapped up into this cult, got young, and then I mean, is it is it a reading to say that? He, his attempt to go on the honeymoon on the on the tramp steamer with his bride is a way of him trying to escape. You think, I don't do, can, think he thinks he's trying to escape. Um, uh, I think he's 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 sort he of got like, what he wanted, and now it's like yeah, I, he he I, graduated. I he gra- no, not I'm out of here. It's like the reason I was learning all those European folk dances, the reason I was uh, studying all these <laughs> books and borrowing all these books and sort of forgetting about, you know, the fine things in life is because I was overly concerned with dying. And I the the thing paid off and unlike uh our hero or or our t- titular character in the alchemist, right, who basically mm-hmm. fucked up his his immortality by 
being obsessed with cursing a family, right? <laughs> Instead of doing that, he, what he did, he said, you know, life is for the living. And, you know, one of the things I can do is go off to Europe again. And in this time, I'm not going to be going there for studies. Uh, I'm going to be going there to, you know, enjoy the earth. And One thing refutes to your concept there, yeah. which is that he arranged for them to come get his body ahead of time. Uh, well, at least, yeah, I think they yeah. say he did. He, he was. Well, I agree with that point that he was not trying to escape. I think he was planning the murder of his bride as a sacrifice to Lilith all along. Well, and, and that's what I read. Like sacrifice instead. Okay, that yeah, that's how I sort of saw it. That yeah, but I mean, why else would they end up part dead? of the plan? But they drain her blood, right? And they use mm. the blood later on. The, the, like, they, they, they walk out with the vials of blood in their pockets, right? Right, right. and the body. <laughs> <laughs> After so, pouring out all the whiskey at the parties. Yeah, that, 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 they didn't care about the purity of the blood so much, right? Mm. They just dumped it the It's very there. interesting. It, 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 that's definitely there. I'm, I, I'm, wondering, I'm wondering why he's dead, though. And is he actually dead? I get the sense that he's not. I, I think he's dead. He's going, and it, but there's the there is the probability of him being brought back to yeah, a that's life what I of mean, some kind. Right? Is going the, through the death, some sort of transformation. Death is not yeah, permanent we, for him. We, 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 which kind of echoes again with things like Innsmouth. It's like, mm. but he's he's not going to he's not going to turn into a deep one. Per well, see, se, in Innsmouth, but, nobody turns into a deep one. The only promise is for your children mm. to go back to the ocean. Mm-hmm. You know that you don't get anything. It's for your progeny. Yeah. Which is another form of immortality, right? But it's it's not you know it's so, it's not a directly for you I, one. I want to talk about uh, like why why it's so silly. You know, Lovecraft's sort of focus on he he's a punch downer. You know, like uh, I think yeah. punching up is the way to go. Always, you know, I, it's okay for me to make fun of anybody who's higher up the uh, power ladder or you know money ladder or social ladder anything. As long as, but if I ever punch down, then I've done something morally wrong. So what I think he's doing here is his, he's sort of, he thinks he's up high, right? But he worries he's down low. <laughs> he thinks he's up high and he worries he's down low. Um, and you know, he's had that experience. He started off as the, you know, a, a, a kid with servants whose job it is to, you know, help out whenever his, his his grandfather's coachmen were not uh you know you know running the coach and grooming the horses they were out helping him build his forts and uh railroad in the you know yard which was huge right um and then when that collapse happens and they have to move into a much lesser place which would just be like a normal house for you know you and I um he feels that that coming down and then he sees one of the things that's funny in here is he says they these new immigrants they they have weird languages their food smells funny right all sorts of horrible stuff and then he says and they're wearing sharp american clothes right and he's he's resentful of that because you know he can't afford to go and buy a new suit every time and so there's a, 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 a an attraction because he's got an intellect and an interest Right, Malone, same way. Is why is he reading all these books? Because he, he's he's a bright guy, and he's interested in stuff, and uh, all this stuff is interesting. Of, but then he's also like a nineteen twenties Fox Mulder or something. Uh, uh, yeah, very much. Except Fox Mulder doesn't have this 
like looming horror in his family history, right? Fox Mulder has what his sister was abducted. Yes, he does. He has well from aliens, but his sister yeah, his was sister taken. was abducted. his sister was yeah. abducted by aliens. It was it was you know that was. I, I guess it's there. It's just not that interesting. Yeah. But what I want to I want to point to because <laughs> that show is super inconsistent, right? What I want to yes, point to is. instead, much is like Lovecraft, <laughs> touche. Yeah, but in any particular story, I don't think he is. Whereas I think, you know, like that that's a series, and it's just like it, it's not it. It has good episodes, but it's completely different kettle of fish because. Let, let's just like look at a series like I want to talk about True Detective and Bosch, right? Where when you've got a an investigation of a murder, right? Uh, children go missing. Um, some some you know feds come in and you have to work with them. the The focus is always down generally, and when it focuses up as to like people higher in society. Um, the the trauma comes from the police being shut down, right? And that actually happens in this story. Whereas uh, some the narrator comments like some screw up uh, made the investigation shut down, right? And there's a judgment there. Well, probably what I would say is like they're investigating sort of stupid stuff. Basically, they're going around looking at these immigrants who they the narrator says shouldn't have been let in in the first place, and then other people are saying. Oh uh, no, they're all illegals. They don't have uh the documentation and if the if the law was actually, you know, swift, they'd all be, you know, and that's in the audio drama as well. They'd all be kicked out of the country immediately. To me, it's really funny framing it with Malone as a main character. Is of mm-hmm. course the Irish were the last generation. That's what I'm saying. Right. Right. The, 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 the audio drama makes a good point of uh Malone facing anti-Irish purges, but the story itself does not. Well, but I think that that's, you know, the fact that he chooses to do that, right? That he chooses to have Malone as this Irish cop, you know, he's actually distance. It's again, Lovecraft distancing himself. But what I want to tie this all into is that like, we have real life stuff, like in our society where these, this, like, this is kind of a Jeffrey Epstein story, you know? Like there's, there's, uh, mm-hmm. people who are running things who are all cozied up to sex criminals, right? And then stuff happens and we don't know the truth. And that's why this story feels so like, oh yeah, we actually don't know what's going on. We have these rumors. We have this. We have these facts, but we don't have, you know, it doesn't all come out at once and we have it all explained to us. And, it's like ongoing, right? It's ongoing. And you say, oh, well, you know, there's something going on. But be- because it's all hinted here, like, I-, I much prefer this to Dreams in the Witch House. And it is a very similar story in the sense that it's got so the ties to the uh, European magic and, I guess, Asiatic magic. He's mashing it all up together here, right? But it is, it's kind of a yellow peril story, but in the wrong direction. Instead of coming from East Asia, it's coming from West Asia. Instead of coming... Well, they're both wrong directions, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, in the wrong direction is in the sense, you know, usually the the horror is from China rather than you right, know, but from the horror the, is Uzbekistan here, or something. You know, I think you're supposed to feel as horrified by the mixing of races as by the uh, whatever 
elder god well, stuff is he, going he's on. He's really good at I mean, he talks it's, about it's hybrid squalor, yeah, dark, subtle faces. He refers to Asian dregs wisely turned back by Ellis <laughs> Island. Um, and then he contrasts that with, you know, faint fragments of Scandinavian and American belts <laughs> within the city. Yeah, and he talks about remnants of some... clear-eyed mariners, which is supposed to make us feel that, you know, once uh, seafarers were pure and nice and probably never swore or drank either. <laughs> well, and, and it's only when a couple of good blue-eyed blonde Norwegian or Dutch children are, are kidnapped that they start noticing the tons of poor children that have gone missing. Well, that, that unfortunately, you know, no, it's just, and that's unfortunately, never is changed. how society yeah. is. Oh yeah, no, we, you know, but still, it's like, yeah, it's it's only when it impinges on real people. Yeah. So, that, so that I want to I want to ask why those buildings collapsed because I I think I know the answer, but uh, what do you guys think? Why did those buildings collapse? Why did those little police didn't get her night? The little didn't get her wedding night. <laughs> so she, well, no, I mean, Malone, she like knocked out the pillar, the golden pillar that was down there, no, and no, Sidem tipped over the pillar. Didn't yeah, so, he? so you know, that was a weird moment because it seems like uh, Sidem sabotaged everything he was working toward. Was well, there some element some. of soul within in himself that finally? rebelled at what was happening and tried to stop it all. Well, this is the reason why I was, th- was floating my theory that he was trying to get away from it all. But you, know, you guys have convinced me I'm wrong, but I don't it, know. I just feel I, like he was, I don't know he, he was trying to like walk away. You know, so that's like, I got what I wanted. I got my immortality. I got my bride. See ya. And then little <laughs> stuff. There's always stories because he finally saw what he was marrying. I mean, he'd never seen the true form or something before mm. and flipped out. And he's like, hey, don't stick your dick in crazy. And um, <laughs> 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 the toppling over of the plinth was very symbolic. Mm. <laughs> Definitely. Um, and, you know, it's it, this is in the se- – there's a, a wonderful multi-page sequence in – in uh, Providence issue two, where Robert Black goes down in under Robert Sui Dem's house and sees sees all this stuff and he sees the golden pillar and then he s- sees the bones. Except in the story, it's more like half devoured people still alive, right, or whatever. Um, and then I don't think we see the we do, I don't think we see the the docks, the underwater docks that we were implied in the story. We don't see those, do we? Um, we get the sense that they're there, but we don't actually. Well, there's underwater. You see the underground waterways. You don't get any sort of sense of where they connect to, except that it's a giant warren because of rum running and before that pirates and before but that. More, more importantly, it's for bringing in the immig- illegal immigrants, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, for for our our investigations purposes. Um, while he's but down it's there, not under Sidem's house, it's under. The apartment and the area that he kept in the Red Hook district. Right, right. His house is yes, yeah, town. yeah. And he's he's and there's the church too, which um, is prominently. I, I, Evan, you really, if you haven't read it, you should because you'll dig it. Uh, the courtyard, which is the sort of prequel to Neonomicon um, and okay. uh, Providence by Alan Moore and Jason Burroughs. Um, it has the church and it 
it we see it both in you know the period uh this disused church that's also a nightclub <laughs> right um and it's 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 like um you know lovecraft doesn't he doesn't he's an atheist right but he also he's he's interested it's like maybe the religions do know something but it's bullshit but i love i love that like we can see his psychology and that's why you know i'm listening to evan's podcast and he's he's scolding lovecraft sometimes and then he's like yeah that's this really is really should. interesting I, absolutely but the thing is is if you only do the scolding and you only have the holier than now what you're really saying is is like this is people people are fucking complex and his brain is broken we know this because because he's holding multiple ideas together that don't uh, in his own head you know like that these are horrible and disgusting and why am i so attracted to them right it's it's like it's like he's that's why there's a lot of that you know guessing that he's he's a repressed homosexual because there's that homophobia coming from a homosexual and until he you know embraces it but it isn't necessarily a homophobia that or in this case you know like it's i don't think there's a lot of homophobia at all in lovecraft actually it's almost all race hatred but it's all fear of that corruption and the degradation which is in his own history right and i think that that's like i need to hold myself up i need to act a certain way and so having all these you know I explorations am a yeah that's his that's his that's his armor against um the horror that is you know oh shit this is going to happen and oh, what if this happens and what does that mean and and so and because he's got this active brain uh you know always interested in new books even on stuff you know that he thinks is bullshit um he needs to sort of try and fit it all in and that's why when you read his letters um he sounds so um wonky is cuz he's kind of having these conversations to think about these things and so he'll talk uh, Evan you're covering his letters a lot yeah right? I, so. I just want to I, I what I want to say here is yeah he's an atheist but I think he really buys this idea that there's like primordial cults out there as a real historical phenomenon that's why I was always mentioning Murray the witch cult of Western Europe like the thesis of that book is essentially these witches were a real thing. They weren't just the paranoia of sexist Protestants, mm-hmm. right? Which is a common interpretation. And, you know, I, back to the geography of this too. I, I don't think the geography, to one degree, the geography matters a lot in this tale as much as it does in Call of Cthulhu, which seems much more worldly, you know, because, but the, here it's like you got the sea, you got the immigrants, and you got the civilization that's somehow besieged by them. But when it comes to these traditions themselves, like, does it matter that it comes from Asia, East Asia, West Asia, or Mexico? I don't think it matters because it's so pre- primordial. Mm-hmm. He writes here, age-old horror is a hydra with a thousand heads. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll just pimp uh, or I'll, I'll shill for a book here. The Many-Headed Hydra by Peter Leinbaugh and Marcus Redeker is one of the best books of Atlantic history um, ever written about working-class resistance movements from 1500 to 1900. Um, but anyways, age-old horror is a hydra with a thousand heads, and the cults of darkness are rooted in blasphemies deeper than the well of Democrates. 
the soul of the beast is omnipresent and triumphant. And Red Hook's legions of blear-eyed, pockmarked youth still chant and curse and howl. And later on, he says, he writes, Who are we to combat poisons older than history and mankind? Apes danced in Asia to these horrors. And the cancer lurks secure and spreading where furtiveness hides in rows of decaying brick. So I'm reminded here that like Dagon, like at the climax of Dagon, mm-hmm. there's this brief moment where he's like, you know, maybe the religion of Dagon is some tie to this thing I saw mm-hmm. in the Pacific. Right. And you got the Juan Romero thing with the Huitzilopochtli somehow connected to Hindus. And I think he just sees this all as like prehistoric, these roots. Yeah, it's and that primordial. Really fascinating to me that like back to the roots of our very language, maybe beliefs have remained. And who's who sustained them? And I think this is for me in, in kind of my interpretation of this story and Cthulhu and some others. It's who holds that key. It's it's you could say it's in the Necronomicon or something, but no one reads that. It's under lock and key, right? Mm-hmm. Miskatonic University. Who's holding these traditions alive? Are these working class people, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And usually, the most exploited people in 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 the system are being described that way. Certainly, in tra- case of Charles Dexter Ward, you have slavery playing a role. There, there are more victims, I guess. But in Cthulhu and in this story, they're the villains and. And they have a lot of power. Yeah, they they actually yeah, they get away with it, right? Yeah, they get away with it, and the, the working class power. It's it's really interesting. Like the anthrop, basically, Sidem's uh, an anthropologist, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> he's he's writing these he's writing these uh, pamphlets. Well, that's what he claims later. <laughs> I mean, he's not a disinterested observer studying for science. He's trying to unlock well, secrets is. for his own power. There's that too, but he's also he's also like literally writing pamphlets, right? Um, he's interested. I mean, what is he doing? He's he's gathering books together. He's going and hanging out with the people. He says there he's listening to their dance, uh, listening to their songs, and 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 doing their uh, watching their dances or whatever. Um, he's definitely hanging out with them. He's he's boarding them, right? He's doing all sorts of stuff with them. But more importantly, if you if you think about like what Malone's doing, he's doing the same thing, right? He's going into the place and when he's walking down the street he says they're playing their music on their cheap guitars right, or whatever it is they're cooking their stinky food and it's like uh it's it's like when you're a little kid and you go into a restaurant that you've never been in with your mom you know and your mom says try this and you're like no i don't like that it's green or whatever right <laughs> and then you know you get you try it and it's actually really good because these people, and this is this is like xenophobia and uh, xenophilia are kind of they're they're dispositionally closer than you'd think. They're not like they're it's like a knife's edge between collapse in one direction and collapse in the other. And so you, if you've got a guy who is you know from this high end place uh, part of Providence, and then he goes to New York and gets married and then he leaves, right, and returns home and he has this horrible experience and he can classify it as a horrible experience. I mean, it doesn't... Uh, the worst thing that happened to him in New York other than, you know, separating from his wife was that his apartment was robbed, right? And he doesn't know who did that. 
but he didn't like get the shit kicked out of him by a bunch of Chicanos or something. He, he didn't get a job. He couldn't get a job, and he could see everyone around him hustling and getting jobs because their their marketable skills are much better, right? You know, they're I think he mentioned laborers. the letter that his clothes are stolen at one point. Yeah, yeah, his apartment was burglarized. Um, yeah. And, and uh, yeah, and th- that's his armor, right? So the thing is, is given the right circumstances, right? Um, you know, the right introduction. I don't think he is going to be, and this is true for everybody, right? Like you say, I don't like, uh, spicy food. And I'm like, well, maybe you, you haven't tried the right kind. Let's go to a Thai restaurant, you know? Well, I mean, if you really want to look at, you know, that weird fascination with things, how many of us didn't, at least Google dinosaur porn when it became a thing. <laughs> I'm going to raise my now. hand of not one that. of the people who did, but I didn't know it was. So I oh, could do yeah, it now. About three years and four years ago, it was a huge, it was like this weird subgenre that turned up in, in, on, um, yeah, oh, and Chuck Tingle, he's a whole different thing. <laughs> no, but he got into that too. That's how oh, I found yeah. out about it. Yeah. But know. Chuck Tingle thing. takes it to a meta level that doesn't exist anywhere else. Uh, Chuck Tingle has books like I Was Pounded in the Butt by the book that I wrote about being pounded in the butt. What? I mean, yeah, it's a meta level that you can't even imagine. But yeah, I mean, it's just, we all have that weird fascination. We're like, oh my God, that can't exist. Oh my God, it does exist. Now it's in my browsing history. Rule 34. Yeah. But I mean, so it's, it's, it's actually far easier to, to think of, you know, oh yeah, that would be a weird fascination, at least for five minutes. But, you know, everybody has different levels. But anyway, sorry. But, uh, but there's a big difference between, you know, like a, a meme that pops up uh, for, you know, uh, like I'm really into <laughs> a couple. Of, I, I, I think the Karen meme is really funny and the wine ant meme. You know, these are things that are current 2020 or maybe 2019. I'm a little behind the times memes. But that's different than like a, a massively old cultural tradition that has like that's that's what. You know, if we call ourselves an anthropologist by hanging out on uh, knowyourmeme.com, that's not the same thing as, you know, going and hanging out with these weird speaking language folks. But I was thinking and, of, you know, you're, you're talking about how close the, the Lovecraft's fear is with his fascination. Yes. I mean, I mean, you know, fear and fascination. I, I would not actually want to have sex with a Tyrannosaurus <laughs> Rex. But at the same time... You just wonder who the hell thought of that and why and how do they explain that actually working, you know? <laughs> but um, and isn't it a reptile? But um, <laughs> you know, the, uh, one other interesting thing I wanted to mention before from before is you know talking about how things are connected between like Mesoamerica and uh, Southeast Asia. I mean, in uh, India, um, you know, recently they found. A set of monkey teeth, I think, in South America that definitely came from from across the ocean. I yeah, mean, yeah. that were like prehistoric, so that monkeys somehow mm. made it across the ocean on our on some vegetation or something. Mm. Or, so, I mean, or, the- or it was brought. It was brought there. There, there, there is very tenuous <laughs> evidence that there was Polynesian contact with the west coast of South America at some point, but it's very, very, very thin on the ground evidence. It's tantalizing as hell. It's like, cause like, oh, yeah. wait, what? 
But yeah, yeah but my first fun. thought was they came across the Pacific because it was in Peru. Yeah, yeah. But you know, I'm like, that's that's the bigger one. <laughs> I mean, that's, the Polynesians were badasses as far as you know sailing across the Pacific. But that's that's I mean I mean Peru's a couple thousand miles further than they ever got in that we know definitively, I Easter Island and Hawaii. So it's like, really? But you know, yeah. so, so it's very, so I'm very skeptical about this. I'm, I'm excited, but skeptical. If you're yeah. But you I mean, know, it's popular. Just... Like I think it was way back in the thirties and forties and stuff. I, I think partially it's because when they yeah. dated the, dated the, the Beringia Strait uh, land bridge and you try to say, how long would it have taken people to settle down at the South? It didn't work out. And they found these sites, but I think now they think maybe people are migrating even earlier than 13,000. Longer, yeah. yeah. I, I, I know I can't cite it, but at some point uh, 20 years ago, probably, I read a book that made some claims for connections between uh, Far East religions and, the, and Mesoamerica also. Because I <laughs> remember basing a role playing scenario on it, but I don't remember the book itself. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's not so far-fetched, but when you studied, like, the Indo-European languages, you find those connections between the Sanskrit and Latin, right? Mm -hmm. So I don't remember too many of them, but one I do remember quite clearly was uh, this, like, Sanskrit god, like, Deus Pitter or something. I'm not sure how it's pronounced. Deus Pitter or something. And Zeus Pater, or mm -hmm. Pitter. It's very Jupiter and Zeus. Obviously, they're related, but there's a very similar god in in the Sanskrit tradition. That sounds I, I'm probably pronouncing it a bit wrong, but you can look this up. It's like Deus Pitter, and you know it's because this word pot, Potter Pitter. It's it's one of the clear connections between the South Asian languages and the and the European ones. Well, Magna Mater is called so called out in to think that some ideas about those gods. The Magna Mater is called out in this story, and that's also uh, called out in Rats in the Walls, right? So, oh, yeah. And that's another deep, you know, dig deep under the house, and what do you find, right? The Great Mother, yeah. And it's, uh, it's really fun to read. It's just like reading Philip K. Dick. When you read Lovecraft, you're basically reading the, psycholo the, psycholo the psychological archaeological dig that he's doing on his own brain. Because it's all set in his own places, and you know the the people are all him and the people he knows, and so it, it's it's and then there, it's tied right in, right? I love dreams. I had a dream this morning. I tweeted it out. It's not very interesting, but he Malone dreams, right? Uh, I think it was in section six, uh, oh maybe section seven. Uh, chapters or the chapters? I guess they're chapters. Malone's, yeah, Malone's dream. dream yeah. Experience of full before he knew of Saturn's death and transferred was curiously supplemented by some odd realities of the case, though there's no reason why anyone should believe it. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So, this is, uh, this is actually, you know, I had dreams related to this story because I was so deep into the story over this last few days, you know? And so, like, yeah, it's, if you're reading these books late into the night and then you go to sleep and whether you remember them or not, your dreams are, are going to be tinged with whatever you're doing. Yeah. I mean, last night I was playing a fate of Cthulhu game and I, 
a very intense one, and I had dreams based on that mm-hmm. game last night. It's like, oh god, I can't get the game out of my head. That's right. And and I I I think this is very high up there in terms of uh, really good Lovecraft stories, and I think it's because it doesn't resolve in ways that like I think that Dreams of the Witch House is too resolved. I don't like seeing you know the black man. <laughs> I like seeing. Uh, the hints that the black man was there, and I guess I guess it's there too. But I, I just found this much much more plausible somehow, and uh, it hit home. I thought I thought Ooh. it was really interesting, and the, I, I find it really poetic too. I mean, if you can turn racism and hate into poetry, which he did, <laughs> um, he's really good at stringing together. I mean, I see other people do it too. I was reading some, some pastiche. There was a story I, I don't know if I sent it to you guys on Twitter, but it was called the, uh, the South of Red Hook, and it was like from 1972. Uh, and I was reading it, and it was like, oh, this guy's—he's really good at capturing the Lovecraftian sort of uh, collage of of adjectives. He's got it real good. And then. <laughs> But then I read this stuff and it's like, no, Lovecraft's better at it. Cause it, it, and, and with Wayne June reading it, I know Julie, you've got a nice reading on YouTube, but Wayne June, he's like the high priest of reading, uh, Lovecraft's. So he builds like in a crescendo of like piling the adjectives and then, oh, the release. <laughs> the, oh, the horror. Um, As and- he unpacked his adjectives. <laughs> you got it. <laughs> no, it, it's it's very much like I, I love reading poetry. Uh, you know, when it does a really good job, especially when it's using sort of like Clark Ashton Smith is so good at, he, he, you know, he's like making me look up stuff. But you, if you just listen for it, the sound, it sounds good. But then when you know what it means, it's like wow, that's even better. That's one thing that I do try to get people to listen to Lovecraft, because long ago, before there was a lot of audio, I had, of course, the um, uh, um, David McCallum readings Mm. of Rats in the Walls. I couldn't remember his name Mm -hmm. there for a second. And the Dunwich Horror. And that was when I realized that the words themselves, the sounds, paint a picture. It isn't, you don't even have to know what they mean if you hear them. And that's why it makes it so much different to listen to it than it is to read it. And so you can, you can actually do it to yourself if you read it aloud, right? But yeah. it's, it's, it's much, it's like more beautiful when it's read aloud because, and the thing is, is it can't be in a foreign language, right? It has to be in a language you understand. But even if you don't understand every word, you sort of get the sense because he's building it. It's he is he's like a composer of of uh, dread dirges, you know. Well, and it's one of the reasons why Lovecraft doesn't translate to screen well because the minute you turn it into a picture, it's not what he wrote. Yep, it's not his words, and you can't do that. It doesn't work. Oh. It, Speaking of foreign languages, can I plug something really quick? Sure. The German versions of my adaptations oh, yeah, of yeah. several Lovecraft stories have come out um, from Contendo Media. Um, they 
the first thing they put out from me was the six episodes of the Lovecraft Five that from my 19 Nocturne Boulevard series, mm-hmm. and they've been very popular and people like them very much. So I'm cool. excited. They really like the way I presented them, um, which basically, for in, if anybody here or anybody listening hasn't heard them yet. Um, I took five iconic characters of Lovecraft, you know, Charles the dilettante, Herbert the scientist, Richard the artist, um, Edward the writer of fantastic fiction, and Warren the anthropology professor, of course. And and they just sit around and tell stories. It's sort of like, I mean, it's it's like Ghost Story by Peter Straub or whatever. But basically, they're telling each other these stories that they've either um, – personally experienced or a friend of a friended and and so it's a way to take some of the harder to adapt lovecraft stories and expand on them and turn them into something that's really interesting because i can also bring in details from the era as they argue with each other over fine points of you know etc and that's been it's been very very popular and that's i'm red hook is actually the one i'm halfway through adapting right now for the next one nice because I'm bringing 19 Nocturne back in October. It's been on hiatus for about five or six years. And, <laughs> and uh, yeah. So, anyway, thank you for Congratulations. letting me plug that. Uh, yeah. Like uh, the Beatles and David Hasselhoff, you're big in Germany. <laughs> oh, I am. And frankly, you know, I hate to say it, but it, I'd like, I want to learn German and move. It's you know what? They're, they're really sophisticated when it comes to audio drama. You would do very well to oh, yes. do that. Um, German, Germany is, is, is the, one of the few places that still has a market for audio drama. Yeah. And, you know, if you were, if you were writing, uh, obscure Poe Lovecraft, you go to France. If you want to do audio drama, you go to Germany. Um, I, I picked out a section from just at random in, in the text here, um, and I wanted to read it just to give a sense uh, of this. And it's just, I think it's so funny. Um, so this is from section two on page 61 of the 1927 uh, January Weird Tales um, uh, second column. It is a babel of sound or babble of sound and filth and sends out strange cries to answer the lapping of oily waves on, at its grimy piers and the monstrous organ litanies of the harbor whistles. And there's actually a poem called Har- Harbor Whistles that's quite good. Um, <laughs> unrelated. Now, here, here's the funny part, right? So he's just described this horrible Syrian-Italian-Negro elements, uh, fragments of Scandinavian and American belts, right? Okay, but then he starts describing the buildings. Listen to this. They're very sexy buildings. Here, long ago, brighter, a brighter picture dwelt with clear-eyed mariners on the lower streets and homes of taste and substance, where the larger houses line the hill. One can trace the relics of this former happiness in the trim shapes of the buildings, the occasional graceful churches, and the evidence of original art and background in its bits and detail here and there, a worn flight of steps, a battered doorway, a wormy pair of decorative columns or pilasters, <laughs> or a fragment of once green space with bent and rusted iron railing. The houses are generally in solid blocks, and now and then a many-windowed cupola, arises to tell of days when the households of captains and ship owners watched the sea. So it's like the buildings are the sexual attraction and the 
occupants, right? The the upper class. No, it's not ship. It's not sailors. It's not common sailors who are the the thing of attraction. It's the class, right? Mm. And and the thing is, is that's what Providence was made out of, right? That's and New York too, right? If you uh, Evans, well familiar with it, Moby Dick is. You know, they go to, it starts in New York, I think, and then they go to Nantucket and then off to sea, right? But it's not told from the point of view of a guy who, who started off high and ended up low. It's a guy who started off in the middle, not too low, and hung out with the low guys and he loved it. It's like an alternative way to go, right? It's an alternative, like, the ship owners, the ship captains are kind of crazy and out of control. And not all of them, but, you know, they become obsessed. And it's that's why I love Moby Dick so much is it's almost like uh, Lovecraft, uh, but without the racism. And so, (laughs) and so, like. Well, it was a white whale. It's super (laughs) homosocial, right? Like, there's. There's tons and tons of guys on board the ship, and at one point they're all squeezing each other's hands under the under the sperm, like the no sperm. Social, sperm no, no good social distancing. Uh, they're, no, they're like also, and there's and like he's lying in bed with his his husband basically, um, and they're and they essentially get married, and you know he floats to sea in his coffin. And it's like it's it's a beautiful male love story, and it's about embracing all these weird weirdos uh, from all over the place. And it's the cap, the ship captains that are sort of uh, out of control. And so it, you could almost read it as a as a Lovecraft story told from the point of view of a person not obsessed with a undersea creature, right? <laughs> it's told from the point of view who of somebody who who's on the ship. But he's just doing that because he's, you know, curious to go to sea, and and that's like it's 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 really refreshing and delightful. But he has that same mind of like, you know, he he can do these wild poetic things. It's a super experimental. So I highly recommend if you if you like Lovecraft, <laughs> I highly recommend you read Moby Dick. He's a, a, even more so like than um, Hawthorne, who I really also like. But Hawthorne is like a little bit stodgy. It's a stodgy, I would say. And he's not even that stodgy. He, he just seems like he is. Whereas I feel like uh, Melville is very dynamic. Like he's out there. He's thinking interesting thoughts. I mean, I shouldn't be the one doing this. Evan, you did podcasts on these guys specifically. You should be extolling the virtues here. Yeah, I did all the Melville. Yeah, on my podcast, and they're really good, right? Yeah, even that later stuff. It's just um, like the Confidence Man. Same kind of idea. You got all these weirdos hanging out in a boat. Mm-hmm. Or, or Taipei. Mm-hmm. Taipei was really good. Taipei, yeah, it's it's always sort of there, except maybe in Pierre. But even that one's wild in its own way. Mm-hmm. I, I like. Actually, and it, and it's it's. I feel like it's anti-racist. It's like it's it's instead of going the, oh, like yeah. like if if Lovecraft hadn't been born in the time he was, where you know he thinks of himself as a 17th century or 18th century gentleman, um, 
what he really is. He's very, he's very much of his period. He, they're all into that shit. Like you look at the ads from the period. It's all about eugenics. It's all about you know uh, not degenerating too much. And the ads are for uh, you know all these things that prevent degeneration, right? And sexual degeneration. And uh, you can mail away for these books of knowledge. Ooh, the French books of knowledge. They know it's they know the score. <laughs> I actually talked about this in my. My my read through of Lovecraft a little bit, and you you you, said, you you know you talked about me scolding him from time. I, I scold him when he was being not necessarily just for being stupid, racist, like it, like that's what I'm trying to unpack. But childish. when he's being juvenile and yeah. silly, yeah, like where he's he's a grown man, twenty five, like signing his letters, "God save the king." And this <laughs> that's what I'm saying. It's, 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 it's so ridiculous. It's sickening, but. um I just think it's a bizarre century for him to try to emulate. I, I know he likes the Samuel Johnson kind of stuff. He wrote that whole story. Yeah. He's hanging out with all different writers. He liked, I think that's his vision of the 18th century. But the 18th century, if, I mean, if you want to know the roots of racial amalgamation in America, look to the 18th century. He's, I mean, we got all these different migrants coming in. You got the slave trade. You got assimilation with Indians. It's or interbreeding, inter, you know, mixing with the Indians and the frontier, the maroon communities. And if you I mean, the that, Atlantic in the 18th century was a racial soup. And if you think so that, it's, that, it's that that's the century he seems, Yeah, it's, it's just so, weird to me that that's the century he seems to emulate because well, it's the most global, uh, all, it's the first global century. I really. think uh, <laughs> I think one of the things is, you know, the the stuff that we have from back then is written from the <laughs> literate point of view, which is the rich point of view. Right. This is why when you read 19th century stuff, they're always like Jane Austen, right? They're always talking about how many uh, pounds a year that person takes in. Well, the reason they take those pounds in is because they have investments, right? <laughs> it, that's what they live on. And that's those, those are the folks that aren't the regular folks who are milking the cows and shoeing the sh- horses and making the shoes in the factories, right? And those people didn't write anything. Now, in the 1919 and 1920s and 1930s, all those people are reading books and they're writing books and the books they're, you know, writing, they're not only writing about the hoity toits, right? Mm-hmm. And, and so there is this like, class is like the biggest issue. It's not re- when people really, you know, they get mad at Lovecraft about races, you know, he's a white male. <laughs> it's not his maleness. It's not his whiteness. Mm-hmm. It's his, class that is fucking up his brain and he sees that you know because you he he'll say really nice things about spaniards as long as they're from the high class spaniards right not the 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 low class hybrid squalor masses right with their stinky (laughs) food he has an iron gray beard he's a good guy (laughs) you know he's a good guy because his beard is iron gray well, he's a doctor. Like about his, yeah, but he's not. He's not one of those lowly, you know, University of Hawaii doctors. He's a European trained doctor, right? Mm-hmm. Not the hybrid squalor doctors. <laughs> uh, so I have, a, I have a really good idea for a, um, for a book, uh, or a, I would say a story. Um, do you guys know about the Massey affair in Hawaii? It was talked about in a recent episode of. Um, uh, the uh, Voluminous podcast, which is the H.P. Yeah. Lovecraft. Lovecraft. Yeah, about yeah, that. right. Yeah. 
How, yeah, so I actually was familiar with this because of a documentary on PBS that's really good, and I think it's on YouTube. Um, and uh, and more importantly, I found uh, contemporary magazine articles, and I tweeted them all out. So this this story is really interesting. This is during the 1930s, and uh, this family gets into a beef. Uh, well, a beef. Uh, there's this wealthy. Uh, officer class, Navy officer whose wife, um, flees a party in Hawaii. Um, they were fighting at the party. She walks home. Um, and then she calls him at the party from home and says, you need to come home right now. <laughs> and he goes home and he says, what's the issue? Um, and she says, I was attacked on my way home. Um, and he says, well, this is really serious. Let's get the police involved. And she said, no, 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 no. Basically, she she's a, a liar. It's, it pr- probably nothing actually happened, or you know maybe she saw get, got some idea in her head, but really nothing actually happened. So what happens? Um, the police are involved. The mom insists. The husband insists. She eventually gives some information of very vague type. They go and arrest five locals, natives. Um, actually, some of them are hybrids, right? But some of them are uh, native Hawaiians. One of them is a prize fighter, and they uh, they arrest they arrest them, put them on trial, and there's a hung jury, so they're essentially acquitted, right? Uh, mother of the daughter doesn't take that as cool, so she gets a bunch of local sailors, um, other. Uh, not officers, but local, uh, you know, U.S. military sailors, um, to go and grab them and they beat the shit out of them, try to make them confess. They end up killing one of them. Yeah. And they put the family on trial and they're convicted, uh, by a local jury, which includes native people. <laughs> and, uh, the governor, this is all like playing out in the newspapers and the governor, um, is like, not uh, state governor because they don't have that, but territory governor, ter- yeah. territorial governor, um, sentenced sentenced them them to serve their hour for their murder in his office while having drinks. And this story is like every newspaper in the United States is playing this up like way bigger than you know Epstein and stuff, like way way bigger. It's like the headline sensation for weeks. Um. And everybody is rabid for the justification of killing these, this guy. And more importantly, they think it's a, a travesty that they were even convicted. And yes, the hour is at least something, but how dare those, uh, colored folks, right? So my idea is you actually take Lovecraft, put him on honeymoon <laughs> in Hawaii. And you would throw in some tiki gods uh, instead of uh, whatever gods he's got going in here. Um, and you just play up the racism and play it real close and, and make it very sympathetic to the, the native's point of view, which is where it should be. Because honestly, uh, this story is so fucking insane, the Massey affair. You, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't believe like it could actually happen, but it so exemplifies the common thought at the time. Like, most people were whipped up into an insane, you know, racist 
fury over the idea that a white woman be violated by a native when, in fact, nothing of the kind actually occurred. Well, it, and that is a, it's actually a very common sort of thing, I mean, throughout a lot of American history. Mm-hmm. That, that I can't cite instances, but I'm, I've heard of many in different places around the U.S. where Oh, yes, and, many, and many times. This just got a great deal more press than, mm-hmm. than most yeah. of those And incidents. it's in an exotic location uh, for the United yes. States. You know, not, uh, not part of the States yet, right? It's got all this pre-war yeah. Japanese hatred. Um, you know, in, in fact, in those same letters, Lovecraft is saying uh, those if if they ever uh, if the Japanese ever get their shit together and they're going to want to take over. Uh, if there's ever a conflict between the United States uh, and Hawaii, we're going to have to put round up all those Japanese and put them in camps because they can't be trusted. They're loyal to their home nation. Right. And which is exactly what happened. Yeah. Well, and, and one of the the worst parts about a lot of those things is that it, you know well it, we we find out there's an underlying lie and the lie was never intended to get anybody in trouble mm-hmm. it's that it's always a mother or a father or a brother or somebody when the the girl herself is like i was out late uh i was attacked yeah and they're like ah well it's to like, kill oh, a mockingbird isn't no, it it's the same yeah, story right. as to yeah, kill yeah, a mockingbird exactly that's what i was thinking so many different, you know, and and which goes back to the patriarchy, of course. <laughs> no, mm-hmm. it does because you know if oh if, it does, if, you know, control your woman and say you're doing it to protect their purity. Yep, do what they want to do and not have to have their precious virginity protected for whatever reason. Well, you, you like, don't you, you don't want to have any bastard children is the main reason, right? You always know who the mother is. The mother always knows who her child came from because it came right out of her body. But the the man doesn't. He just has and to. Nobody cares. We shouldn't care. Well, you say that but... from a girl's point of view, it makes sense. Well, yeah. You say that from a guy's point of view, you got Saudi Arabia, right? But the pro- well, the problem also is that I mean, it comes down to financialness. I mean, because uh, as long as men hold all the money, they don't want to pay for somebody else's child. Well, there's the time. There's the time investment too, right? You know. Yeah. Um, yeah. Know. But yeah, it's. But, it's but, I but, mean, it's, yeah. But, it's 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 a it's a weird system. And this is this is actually the squalor and squalidness that I do think Lovecraft is right about. Like this kind of shit, really uninteresting. I'd much rather think about like how, chem- how chemistry works. You know, like how <laughs> planetary systems work, because that's it's much more interesting. Like the fact, like. Like, if you think about biological jealousy, it's so fucking animal low. Like, Jesus mm-hmm. Christ. Like, I mean, I like tigers. Tigers are cool, but I don't want to spend my all my time thinking about tigers, right? Because it's just, they're so instinctual. They're so biological. I, I like bears. They're cool. But, I, you know, there's more interest. I like Shakespeare more than bears, you know? <laughs> Because he's got he's got a little bit more. more. He did publish a lot more than most bears. <laughs> <laughs> so I'd like to make some Oh yeah, Black Tom, Black Tom. <laughs> um, Let's talk a little bit if, about Black Tom. Uh, this is definitely not my uh fav- favorite HPL story. I like um Oh, the Mountains of Madness and Shadow over Innsmouth are really good. Um but uh if you want to read something, you know, without feeling like you're 
flinching every minute or being punched in the face by HPL's racism. <laughs> uh, if you want to read something from a modern perspective that actually addresses racism, I highly, highly recommend Victor Laval's The Ballad of Black Tom, which is basically this entire story from the perspective of one of those so-called dregs of society. Um, and uh, there is a great deal of understanding of why you know, with all the dirty cops who are actively trying to oppress the people, you know, and uh, how society is stacked against them, there's a great deal of understanding of why they might uh, turn to elder gods and chaos to topple the current system. Um, I also recommend Matt Ruff's Lovecraft Country. Uh, I just looked that up. Uh, the book is great. Um, it's sort of uh, episodic. There are some really warm and funny characters. There's not a lot of humor in the Black Ballad of Black Tom. <laughs> but Lovecraft Country is really fun. And I just looked it up on IMDb, and it says there's the TV series uh, that HBO is doing is in post-production. So there's some hope that it'll come out sometime late this year mm -hmm. if things ever go back to normal um for i haven't read providence but uh if you want some eldritch horror uh in graphic form i highly recommend saladin ahmed's abbott miniseries um i think it's like six comic books or so set in 1970s detroit um with a uh a black female reporter who uh, sees that there are, uh, you know, horrific things going on and is having a real hard time getting anyone to pay attention to them or even let her run stories about them. And I reckon you need him. <laughs> I'm sorry. What? Where's Kolshak when you need him? <laughs> you know, from uh, sorry, Night yes, Strike. Right, back right. her up. Yep. Say 70s, and I'm like, ah! <laughs> <laughs> and one last recommendation is for Bitter Roots, also a series of comic books um, uh, that is set in 1920s Harlem, where racism itself is a force that uh, creates eldritch horrors. And there are, there are, um, there's a family of alchemists in Harlem who are trying to combat this. Hmm. Trish, have so you read... All of those are things that I think people, I don't think anybody should read this story alone by itself without context. Yeah. <laughs> if you are studying the history of the genre, then yes, maybe you want to read it, but there's, you don't actually have to subject yourself to it. If you want to, I, it's not, it's not that bad uh, on uh, uh, maybe was there sense. Was there maybe it's not for you, bad for you, Jesse, but I think there are a lot of people that will feel it perhaps more deeply and, and have a lot of more resonance with their own lives at the racism expressed in this. So I, for people who don't want to have to go through that, I recommend those four things that I just recommended. Well, I, I just want to clarify. Nice. Was there was there any censorship of this version, like the uh, uh, reading, Julie? You, I didn't hear your whole thing. Was there uh, the N word used in the story at all? I don't think it was. Well, right? No, of course not. But that doesn't mean that. I mean, no, I say of course not because 
Because some of them about uh, it wasn't about people of African well, it descent. Well, you know, Negroid. You know, it's, uh, it's yellow. Lots of yellow. Lots yeah. Of, no, it's yellow peril more than anything else. Yeah. Um, and and it's not even really. Yeah, it's 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 West it's West Asia. It's so weird that it's the Kurds. I mean, being such a small group that they focus on. I think it, I think you're 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 right. But, you just read that book that you sent yeah, the link yeah, to, and, and it's fun. It's interesting. In fact, I, I know that in a very contemporaneous issue of Weird Tales, there is the peacock's feathers on the cover, uh, written by maybe E. Hoffman Price, and. Um, you know, this symbol, uh, the peacock's feather, um, is actually the last page of issue two of Providence. There's a very uh, happy-looking young man on the last page of issue two, and he's holding a bundle of peacock's feathers as if he's selling them and handing them out. Um, and he's got these three claw marks, you know, not made by human hand on his face, but he's super happy. <laughs> okay. Hey, wh- one thing I I wanted to just touch on because it's one of my personal hobby horses in almost every single, you know, Lovecraft story is once again the chick doesn't even get a name. <laughs> yeah, you're right. Because, the, the girl of high birth that he marries and who's slightly his relative. Yep. Yeah. Well, she, um, she, it's it's not uh, Liveth gets a name, so you're, you're good. Yeah, yeah, great. Yeah, because that's not. Even, she that's doesn't even get a last so, name. It's terrible. So, she, well, she's like Madonna. She Liveth only needs one name. I want to. I, I want to talk Lilith about. Is so unrecognizably not female that he flees um, rather than says. But anyway, I want to. I want to talk about Trisha's point. I I I don't think that this is that bad. I I am. Um, very sensitive to racism. I'm not a big fan of it. Um, I think that there is racism in here. It's expressed by the narrator uh, more than Malone, more than anybody else. The narrator's the sort of fucked up brain. Um, and yet, I think that it's really beautiful. Like, like I'm not, I'm not a big fan of going around saying, you know, racism is beautiful. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying, like, it's almost like the way I... Uh, I don't think that the guy who wrote, um, uh, it's the Kung Fu guys. Ah, God damn it. Uh, Sex Fu Manchu. Yeah, Sax Romer. Fu Manchu. So, Fu Manchu. Fu Manchu, his, his writing skill's not very good. Like, it's okay. It's competent. But, um, what's fun about that is that Fu Manchu is so, so cartoony and cool. You don't actually don't care about his his British heroes, the Petrie and Doctor Petrie and whatever the other guy's name is. They're kind of lame. They're kind of like the upholders of the of the shitty, you know, British Empire, British American Empire that you know they think is so wonderful. We love spending time with Fu Manchu and his his daughter and their evil machinations because they're like they're colorful and they're rich and they're full of life. And Petrie, I've read a couple of those books, and I agree with you there. The um uh, the villains are the more the so-called villains are the more interesting one, and uh, uh, Sax Romer actually expresses some arguments on their side that, well, it, that you know, make a lot of sense. Yeah, and as well, the books go by, you don't necessarily he gets more want women like to rule in the world, but throwing off Western imperialism, sure, it, they, he he actually lets Fu Make some good arguments about yeah, that. Yeah, no, he's he's the he's the more interesting like and as the books go by, right, the fact that they never, 
you know, defeat him and, you know, dance on his grave, <laughs> right? They only, it's always a temporary setback, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that actually, it speaks to that sort of, uh, that's why, like, um, when you read Robert E. Howard, like, he has some really horrible stories in terms of racism, but they're not horrible in terms of, like, if you read them today, you're going to become racist. Almost nobody who reads these stories, you know, comes away saying, you know what? That guy really makes a lot of sense. And I don't see a lot of trauma that can be like, like this isn't like, it's so distant from the, like, you're not going to see. I mean, maybe, maybe if you had your kid kidnapped and you saw your, they said they saw the kid in the window and then they couldn't find the kid. That would traumatize you. But I don't think that this is very um, damaging in terms of, you know, going to hurt your brain. In a, well, it's full of microaggressions, if nothing else. <laughs> it's very, it's, I don't think they're, I think they're macroaggressions. They're falling apart because other people live there. They're macro, they're big, they're, yeah. they're broad strokes, I think, rather than, this is not, I, he's not passively attacking these people. He's actively saying they're, he's composing a sort of a, uh. Pan? Yeah, it's a pan, a pan. One of those, those, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a poem of, of like, ugh, disgusting. Also, look how sexy they are. Oh, oh, wait, wait, no, 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 no. So it's like, it's like a big piece of beautiful, like, I, I don't think this is his best work, but I think it's very up there in terms of really doing so much in such, you were saying, Evan, that it was so short. Um, and yet it has so much going I remembered on. It much yeah, I thought it was like an hour and a half, but it's on. only an hour. Right? happening. But I was just surprised when I saw the audiobook. It's very deep. Hour. Like, now, my feeling on the race thing here is I don't think this story is worse than The Call of Cthulhu. I think The Call of Cthulhu is as racist as this story. It's just that you don't have the narrator because that's told in a, that much more objective way, right? With those different documents. It's mm-hmm. a documentary story, right? Mm-hmm. This has a narrator who has these views about Red Hook and the people that live there. And so it comes off that way, but I don't think at the essence, it's telling very much a similar story. Mm-hmm. Right? About It's not as immigrant. good as Innsmouth. I think Innsmouth oh. is sort of a, a, this story, but but even more interesting and more fun. But it's very well, My close. personal history with this story, the Red Hook, is when I first read it, I was taken aback by the language and I didn't think much of the story though. And I didn't, I, not that I thought it was fine, but I didn't ponder it too much. And then I wrote my article, the Innsmouth look article and the reviewer said, you, you got to put in red hook. And I'm like, okay, I'll go back and look at red hook. And then that kind of unlocked a lot of things I was talking about, like mm. the sailor as villain and victim and about post-industrial communities and traditions and knowledge, a lot of the things I was working on in that article, and and the racist and eugenic stuff too. And this article did, or this story did, touch all that stuff, and it ends up actually being a central cornerstone of the article I wrote. I, mm-hmm. I, I added like four or five pages, all about Red Hook, connecting all these things together. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but I, I when I was first read it, I think I looked up some stuff on it and people were saying this is one of his worst stories or it's him it's him as his racist worst. Yeah. And I think it's another ST Josie also says this is one of his most horrible stories. And I think this one now the street is kind of a bad story, but like the street, it's this one source is sometimes 
I get the feeling is a sacrifice for people who want who want to like Lovecraft but want to separate themselves what from what seem to be the most racist elements of of Lovecraft. So they say there's a couple stories here. We're just gonna they're gonna be the sacrificial goat or whatever. We're not we're gonna say these are the bad ones, and this lets us enjoy Call of Cthulhu without in realizing just how deep just just as racist in my view the Call of Cthulhu or, or even bad. or even more so. I mean I think I mean. Yeah. Hort Roka is no picnic, but I think Hall of Cthulhu, that racism is a lot more prevalent here. I, I, it's, 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 a, it's, a broader, it's a broader brush here, whereas the Call of Cthulhu, you, almost, you feel it in, 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 its, in its words, where here he's, it's like, oh yeah, Red Hook, where all those nasty, dirty foreigners live, whereas Call of Cthulhu, it's very much root and branch of the, of the entire story and, and of, the, of the plot. Because it's also all about foreigners and miscegenation and and you know weird cults that spread around the world mm-hmm. it you know it's like but but but, but, but even they, they seem to be so similar i mean it's a, yeah it's it's here it's a little more they're, distant as far as what they're actually doing because i mean because it just seems like what are, are they actually transforming people or that like, there's a there's a more of a distance as to what they're doing whereas in call of Duty, it's a lot more explicit what they're doing i think I I, well, I, really, I I prefer I mean, this to Call of Cthulhu. I think it's it's more subtle. Um, I think that one has that big you know thing. <laughs> I, I, I would say less defined rather than more subtle. It's a little less defined, that's, and that's a good. thing. That's what I mean. Because... Yeah, it's like it, it, he isn't saying this is what happened, and and there's a journal like it's it, there's that distancing with the narrator. We get Suidam's story, Sidem story, and we get Malone's story. And then we're left to just say, uh huh. <laughs> and it doesn't come back and says, this is exactly like, um, and I, I, I really dig that. And, and because it's got that beauty of language, uh, it, it is an incantation. Yeah. It's, it's got this ridiculous, uh, element to it. But honestly, that's also some of the fun of playing a game like Call of Cthulhu. Right? Is that there's these secret cults and they're doing bad stuff. Um, this is kind of, I think this is why, like, uh, uh, one of my friends, Will, uh, Emons, Emmons, I want to say Emonsky, uh, Will Emmons, um, he, he's watching those, uh, you know, ancient astronaut shows or whatever. It's fucking stupid, right? Ridiculous. But, um, and another guy on Twitter was asking me about, um, about the uh, current plague theories that the Chinese invented, you know, the coronavirus in a lab or something. And I'm like, what's so interesting is people who don't read fiction, right? They don't understand that almost all the fun ideas that are, they're playing with as possible, you know, conspiracies are actually just from stories. Like they're from fiction stories, so, like, the one I was saying is, uh, you know, if you watch the opening credits of Survivors, there's a Chinese guy in a Chinese lab who accidentally spills uh, a virus, and he gets on an airplane. This is the opening credits. He gets on the airplane, and he starts feeling unwell. The airplane lands, and then we see all these other airplanes taking off, and we see all these passport stamps in all the different cities all over the world, and then the, the story starts, and everybody's dead uh, a giant plague killed everybody so it was built and made in a chinese lab in this story right accidentally released accidentally killed all these people and why are people saying coronavirus is because somebody watched this show and somebody overheard and then they said you know 
this is how the game of telephone works. But if you don't actually immerse yourself in the, you know, the fiction or the TV shows from the 1970s or the, right? I, I was saying to Will that the, now explain why 5G causes it. Uh, 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 <laughs> yeah. g- give me a few minutes. Yeah. Give me give me a few minutes, but. Um, well, because 5G is from China, right? Remember last year they were saying, wow, I mean, they're doing this whole weird persecution. You go of back the, to Telephone, the movie where they... <laughs> well, Huawei is right now in Vancouver. The daughter of the CEO is arrested and waiting extradition to the United States for 5G stuff, basically. So there, mm. there is, there is a kind of conspiracy mindedness to it, but more importantly, like, um, the year after uh, uh, Jack London's The Red One, a story with an ancient astronaut spaceship, um, that's when we start getting ancient astronaut stories, 1919. It's crazy. Like they, or maybe it's 1916 and it's like 1919 is the next. It's like people read the story and then they start writing, you know, Chariots of the Gods and all sorts of silly stuff because... It's a cool idea, and they just run with it. But if you trace these things back, like, I'm pretty sure whatever witch cults they had, they weren't, like, actually summoning up Lilith. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's how yeah, it I actually I don't think worked. they were summoning up uh, Lilith, but, I, I mean, I kind of accept this, at least intellectually, if, if not with any real evidence. Um, there's, a, there's a great book, I mentioned it before here too, the Cultures of Darkness by Brian Palmer, which talks about all these different working class, uh, basically cultures of the night, he called, mm-hmm. you know, and he sees them all as kind of antagonistic to the system and the state and capitalism in, in various ways. But he talks, he starts with the witches and he ends up talking, you know, he talks about like Haitian voodoo cults and the Venetian masquerade, the, the, the Masons, all the way up to jazz clubs and stuff like that. It's a really wonderful, um, sprawling kind of epic history of, of working class cultures of resistance. But he kind of push, he kind of gets to this that, okay, they're not really worshiping and they're not really having sex with the devil or whatever. The, the Matt, what's the name of the witch hunting book called malice. Malice. It's not, they're not really having sex with the devil, but you can imagine it doesn't take that much imagination to, Look, that these are people who they're always one bad harvest away from starvation or some noble who's going to conscript your kids as squires to fight some stupid war or army's going to come through and slaughter everyone. I mean, and you're like on your tiptoes in water, right? Hoping the tide's not going to come in and the tide will come in, right? That's the, that's the life you live. And so for some, Christianity fills in that. Gives them, and that's certainly what the priests want. Christianity fills in that uncertainty with eternal life. But aren't you going to hedge your bets if you're in that position? Aren't you also going to have the, the, the horseshoe? Aren't you also going to have the little lucky charm? The or? transubstantiation is is that, right? It's yeah. the leftover, you know, they don't actually think they're eating Jesus, do they? They don't think the priest actually calls up his blood and put it in the cup, do they? It's like, well, not exactly, but they kind of do. <laughs> right? yeah, so I think this magic was is real in that sense. Yes, it's, it's real as a social <laughs> phenomenon, and it was. And and it, you don't even need, need more evidence than to look at today. You, you could talk to a Christian who also believes in crystals or psychic things mm-hmm. or all these other heterodox beliefs. I mean, plenty of people who are 
in on Sundays, mainstream Christians have all sorts of occult beliefs, yeah. including ancient aliens. Well, uh, or just Zodiac, right? Like yeah. the number of people who profess to be Christians, but also subscribe to this this <laughs> sort of pseudo ancient and also very modern. Uh, I don't know. Newspaper. It's probably. I. I actually don't read the newspaper. I don't know if it's still there, but it used to be when I was delivering oh, the newspaper yeah. as a kid. You know, they would have the zodiac uh, signs, horoscopes, all that stuff, and it's like, yeah, this is complete horseshit. Um, but because of the way people's brains work, and it's it's like a life. It's like a. It's like memes. They just hack into your brain, and that's you know the people will rise up to fill those niches and ideas will do the same thing. But it, it's completely plausible for most Christians to not think too much hard about how, you know, reading the horoscope and their savior on Sunday as being incompatible, even though they come from tra- different traditions, right? Or at least they're separate now. It's well, just yeah, but, I mean, compatible. you take it outside of the context of belief in religion, you know, how many Pokemon have they collected? I mean, <laughs> the, every, you know, people that, which, I mean... You can like Star that, Trek and Star you, Wars? Is this possible? <laughs> <laughs> there was a beautiful, I mean, one thing I was going to bring up, and, and I couldn't find it, to describe where the Yazidi belief fell into where, you know, next to Islam, was there's this great meme that went around that said that is it Judaism was the original Star Wars and <laughs> Catholicism is the, you know, the next two movies. And then, and then, um, you know, Islam was the, the, the first trilogy and then Mormonism was fanfic. But <laughs> I think that's pretty funny stuff. Backed it up, but I didn't want to, it was beautiful because it kind of put it all into perspective if you really think about it. But I mean, in a way that average people could grok. Speaking of but, grokking, uh, I want to send this. Uh, this is the one I was talking to you about. Eve Hoffman Price, the peacock shadow on the cover of uh, Weird Tales, November 1926. It's in the group chat there. Um, so this uh, Yazidi, um, pretty, I haven't read the story, but I'm presuming it's a. Uh, that sort of thing. Let's see what it says. A tale of devil worship uh, and the aditum of darkness. A mystery story of graphic action. An exotic mystery. And Aditum is the innermost sanctuary of an ancient Greek temple. Awesome. And then uh, in the illustration, in- interior illustration, it says, I drew and leveled the luger, then remembered I looked into a mirror. Oh! <gasps> <laughs> Sounds Which so good. Means that you'd be shooting a mirror. It's not really that dangerous. <laughs> well, he's he's, I mean, he's, he's threatened by himself. Come on, man. If you're shooting a laser beam, it might get you. <laughs> but... <laughs> oh, you might get hit by some flying glass shards. This and, this well, guy E. Hoffman Price. He co-wrote uh, a story with Lovecraft called "Through the Gates of the Silver Key," and uh, they were they were corresponding friends. Just <laughs> he visited him in New Orleans in uh, 32, it says. Um, so, uh, yeah, uh, th- this stuff's in the air, for sure. You know, everybody's reading the contemporary stuff. Um, totally worth reading, I think. Uh, don't be put off by Trish's... W- w- uh, there's no trigger warnings needed, I don't think. 
only because it's, you know, not specifically sticking on specific apart from the, unless you happen to be a Kurd. I, yeah, I mean, I'm sure some Kurd could be offended, but they got busy. They got way more heavy shit to deal with right now. I mean, give give the Kurds uh, their own homeland, Kurdistan. Um, let them have their place, and in or at you know, least two, just yeah. not drop them off the edge of the world like we freaking did. Wow. Well, I mean, it, it, it's yeah. it's happened many, many, many times, and it'll happen many, many more yeah. times until they get their Every own time homeland. Somebody who's had your back, and you just walk away from. But them. even but even their own homeland is no guarantee. See, following 18th century and the partition of Poland, so that's no guarantee either. It's true. Um, there's no guarantees. But, One more uh, recommendation I forgot to make is for uh, Ruth Ann Emrys, uh, Wintertide. And uh, Deep Roots. About, sorry? And and sequel Deep Roots. Yes, yes. Uh, about a survivor of no, no, that, no, she the bitter government roots. Oh, bitter roots. A survivor yeah. of what? Of Innsmouth after ah. the government raided I, it. <laughs> I, I know I've mentioned it on the podcast before here, Jesse. It's it's a female protagonist, which Julie should like, who's one of the sub, one of the survivors of the Innsmouth raid. She winds up in a concentration camp along with the Japanese and then gets released and then deci- then goes home to try to rebuild her life and reconnect yeah, with I see this as a yeah, I see this as a much more victorious story compared to like Innsmouth basically uh every all the all the land people get fucked. Whereas here, you know, there's a collapse and that's bad, but, uh, you know, Red Hook doesn't suddenly get reformed. Red Hook doesn't also, doesn't Red Hook doesn't wind up at the sea there. And deep, and deep root, and deep roots the sequel, she winds up investigating something happening in New York, actually. I don't want to give away, but it has to do with another Lovecraft species that is, that is making deals with people in New York in a much more healthy way than Red Hook. His uh, inheritance, Suidim's Sidem's inheritance. Um, I thought that that was the equivalent of the oh. gold from the deep oh. ones, right? That's yes. Like, yeah, I, I wondered where he got all that gold from. I was thinking, he says he gave him a distant, forgotten relative. He was, yeah, he was yeah. becoming broke buying all his books. One thing, did you notice what name of the street he lives on? Yeah. What was it? Um, Martens. Martens Street, right? And then he says, <laughs> I think he said since renamed, right? Probably, but Martens Street, of course, Martens mm-hmm. is the family lurking fear. That's right. Ah. That's yeah, fun. Yeah. He's fun. But, and, and I, I like male and female protagonists. I have no problem with both. It's just that when, you know, I have to call it out when. None of the female characters even get a name. Other than Lilith. She's not a character. She's not a character. She's a character. She shows up with her. She's scraping she's people's sort of faces. Mass. She's only nominally female. But, um, Story's really all about her. Come on now. And she still doesn't get any lines. But <laughs> She but gets no, the poems mean, written about her in here. I can quote some of them for you. There's so many stories where... I mean, where somebody mentions, oh, my wife who died and, and never mentions her name. Mm-hmm. I mean, Armitage leaves his wife behind to go to the investigate the Dunwich Horror, and she doesn't have a name. Uh, he pretty much doesn't – Lovecraft doesn't really talk about women in general. Like, he doesn't no, even talk about his wife, Sonia. You know, he, he yeah. says SG or something, right? He doesn't really – It's it just one of those things that just drives me nuts that – 
he can't even he's so freaked out that he can't even give these characters names i just don't th- i don't think that he's freaked out i think he's just not interested he's like yeah, but but a, a real person who's been married to somebody for a long time tends to mention them <laughs> well yeah but he he was just been married and basically you know, separated. So, I mean, his character. I mean, one way of reading this story is that this is basically him retelling his 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 failed marriage. Right? Well, yes, no, yeah, but but I mean, it just it's just the kind of thing that I feel obliged to care to call out because it is a thing. You know, I yeah. mean, Poe waxed on about women. <laughs> you can stop names. talking about women. Yeah. See, you know, because they were all barely talk about the men. objects who had passed on. The only time, the only time he ever talks about a man is if it turns out to be a, his doppelganger, <laughs> who's also in love with a beautiful woman who's dead. Yes. Yeah. And actually, you know, Poe can be very, very funny too. Poe's the funniest. I, I think how to write a Blackwood Lovecraft, article and the predicament yeah. are so Lovecraft funny. is super funny, but most people, I mean, most of the time he's not going for that, but he's super funny. <laughs> um, no, seriously, tell like, people there is a, there is a hilarious joke in Pickman's model, and nobody seems to be able to find which it. Which one me. is this? What? Please, uh, please tell us about it. If I uh, oh, the, the hilarious joke in Pickman's model is one of the paintings. And I should find the exact quote. Give me a second. Okay. Paul, are you, you know, still with us? I, I am still with you, although I hope we wrap up shortly. Shortly. So there's the one of the paintings that he described is a – okay, here's the exact quote. One disgusting – oh, no, wait. Let's see. Uh, a scores of the beast crowded about uh, the beasts crowded about ghouls. By the way, crowded about one who held a well-known Boston guidebook and was evidently reading aloud. <laughs> All were pointing to a certain passage, and every face seemed so distorted with epileptic and reverberant laughter that I almost thought I heard the fiendish echoes. <laughs> the title of the picture was "Holmes, Lowell, and Longfellow Lie Buried in Mount Auburn," uh-huh. and the. Joke, of course, is that they know they're not because they ate them. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. And it's hilarious. That uh, is a cover of Providence, I believe. Um, there was four special issues. Um, yeah, it is. It's uh, issue seven. There was four special issue covers done, um, and one of them is those guys uh, doing exactly uh-huh. that. And, yes. Yeah. It's and this is uh, yeah well that's a separate story and we've done it before but um, no Lovecraft is funny I don't think there's a lot of jokes in here there's some uh, I think a little nods towards funny situations but uh, I wrote oh sorry I just I was just reminded that I wrote a stage version of Pickman's model for a friend for a cabaret and I don't know whatever happened to it they never got to put it on you better <laughs> transform it into a into an audio drama. Nah, I went out of my way to make it visual. It, I'll do it differently as an audio drama. But um, anyway, sorry. It's just it's just those things where you're like, oh, hey, I'll dash that off for you. Blah, 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 blah. <laughs> they would have been cool, though. Well, thank but, you, everybody. Thank you, Jesse. Thank, thank you. you, Paul. Thank you. I'm going to send you a link to the covers here so you can see it. I think it's here. Did you, you haven't read Providence, uh, Evan? Providence? 
Yeah, the Alan Moore. No, comic. I never got it's around a, to it's it. It's at the I, bottom. I can't uh, read. I can't read comics on the computer. No, I no, have you, one of those. You need to buy the. I have one of those readers. What is it? I don't know. CBR? CD display is yeah, that CD it? Display, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the one I use. I don't no, know, no, and I I downloaded a bunch. I downloaded like a bunch of like like Stephen King stuff, some heavy metal stuff, the Dark Tower. Scroll to the bottom, just, Julie. Sorry, I just what? don't like reading on the computer. Scroll scroll to the bottom of the link I just sent. I think I, I think it's because why like the text is too small. Like for my, you need to just mind. buy the like, buy the. I paper. mean, it's already all caps, so it's hard enough to read comics that way. It's, but just I don't know. Something get the paper, with the man. Size of Buy the paper. It's worth it. It's really interesting. It's because it, what's interest. What what's so interesting is you can't really appreciate what he's doing unless you actually have already read all the stuff. Because like some of it, I was like, I haven't read this story, so I have no idea what he's making fun of. Uh, or it's not even making fun of more. More. I can't tell what more is is talking about. Like because it's very subtle. Like it. It doesn't say this is a story by H.P. Lovecraft. It, so the first episode, oh. the first issue is is an adaptation of Cool Air, and what's really cool about that, you'll like this, uh, Julie. Uh, it's mostly focused on the the well, not mostly focused. It's largely focused on the relationship the housekeeper has with the uh, the doctor, um, mm. and they they're they're in love, and he's dead. <laughs> Mrs. Herrero is, uh, yeah. who actually does get a name in that story. And then the okay. second she's, one. She's one of the only Lovecraft and female characters who also has spoken lines. Yeah. In a story. With a thick uh, Spanish accent. Who cares? <laughs> um, I, I, what, what's so cool is he takes Lovecraft stories and then he flips them on their head. And then because they look familiar, they, so like everything that's negative is becomes positive and, and everything that's positive becomes negative, kind of. Well, and I then mean, he adds he, in other stuff. And the interpretations. Night Gallery version also turned it into a romance. Uh, of Pikmin's model? No, of Cool Air. Uh, it's been a long time since. Yeah, I think I think you're right. I think there was something. And I think about. Pikmin's model, they also turned it into Wasn't a Wasn't there romance. a daughter in there? I can't remember now. It's been no, time. not neither of those. They were too short for that. Huh. But, um, yeah, I mean, it's not like it's not been done. But... Uh, on the other hand, my version turned it into a punk rocker. Um, so. <laughs> this has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com. And thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash sff audio.